detective, thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Care Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you tonight? I'm doing really, really well. It's getting near that time where teachers enjoy in Ontario March break. So, gosh knows I need a week off. And I know the parents either love it or they can't stand it. But either way, I'm not working. So it's going to be good. So, But we have a really good bunch of movies to talk about. Some that you've seen, some that I haven't seen, some that everybody needs to hear about. But first, we have something else we want to share with the audience. Yeah, and we're back to our review episodes. You know, we almost uh, we almost got this at the end of last week, so almost made it a weekly thing. It's, a, it's bi-weekly, I guess. But uh, there were a couple of big movies that released that we wanted to be able to talk about. And uh, that they weren't released till the weekend, so we will have those up. But uh, last time, if you listened, we announced that we're going to start doing a segment that we'll kind of uh, we were going to put at the end of the episode. We decided to kind of put it at the front of the episode. But what we're going to be doing is just highlighting other podcasts in our community. A lot of them are people that we know. I'll say that up front. But uh, highlighting podcasts that we believe, if you're not already listening to should be listening to. Uh, and a lot of these people have, we were originally planning a sort of anniversary episode. So a lot of these people have recorded segments. So what we're going to do is we will introduce the podcaster. We'll introduce the podcast that they are a part of. Bill and I will kind of let you know what you can expect from it. And then we actually have a segment where uh, in this case, the individual will talk a little bit about one of their favorite science fiction, fantasy or horror movies. And I think it would be, it, it would only be very fair to start right up front with uh, with someone who has quite a few podcasts out there who we know well, and uh, it's probably, you know, there's a couple of podcasters that I started listening to when I wanted to, to get back into this, and I think this guy's definitely one of them. I think he, uh, when it comes to just the professional nature of his podcast, they're always very high, and he, he has his hand in like several different projects always, uh, all, all the time, and they're all quality so uh, i'm talking about jason piles jay of the dead whose horror movie podcast uh which, which cleverly enough you know I, I was probably looking for horror podcasts typed in horror movie podcast and yep sure enough it came up <laughs> and was probably one of the first podcasts that i listened to from there i made my way to other things like land of the creeps where i heard bill and others and uh he's also he's got several podcasts out there he has considering the cinema he also has movie podcast weekly that is uh, back up and running. He also has Horror Movie Weekly, 
which uh, has been very consistent in this episode. I don't think it's missed an episode since a weekly episode since its uh, conception. And uh, there's also the more or less brand new. Uh, it's about five episodes in now. Jay of the Dead's new horror movies. If you're listening to this, you've probably heard uh, the content of considering the cinema. You've heard the content. You've probably heard the content of Horror Movie Weekly. They are basically uh, what they say. Considering the cinema is really cool. Uh, Jay uses that to talk about movies and and content that, that fall outside the realm of horror, but also included. He's a big fan of of movies in general. He has a real like eye for films, and he also has a great way of describing them. He is very a kind of critical stance that I, I really enjoy. And on Considering the Cinema, you can also hear Dave Becker has his DVD infatuation podcast as a as a segment of Considering the Cinema. So you can catch all that over there. It's really cool. This new podcast, though, I'm really into it, Bill, uh, where Jay is sort of picking different uh, people in the horror community and kind of forming this almost horror magazine with all these different segments, all these different reviews. All of them are really good. They cover new horror movies, older horror movies. There are segments about lists. You can hear people like Greg Morgan on there. Joel Robertson is a part of that. Gilman Joel Watson, from who is Jay's co-host over at Horror Movie Weekly. And uh, you have Dave Becker as well. And uh, Greg Morgan now from Land of the Creeps, your, your co-host, Bill, is also uh, there. Kyle Bishop, too, is on that podcast. And each segment, if you're a fan of horror films in general, you really can't go wrong with this because I think they hit a different facet almost every single episode. An example would be the last one. You had reviews of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You had reviews of 20 Million Miles to Earth. You had segments about, Jay does a segment about real-life horror that is uh, terrifying, depressing, <laughs> but also sobering sometimes, the horror that could happen to you and uh in, in horror in the films so just a lot of great content jay over the summer recorded this segment for us on one of his favorite science fiction movies uh but i want to turn this over to you bill first uh anything you want to say about these podcasts my story is similar to nathan's in that when i've kind of first discovered horror podcasting and as a listener first and foremost it was uh jay on horror movie podcast that first kind of got me in there now i mean with dave and with josh of course but jay is such a genuine nice guy the way he portrays himself on his podcasting is the way he really is and now i know some people when they meet people that they've looked up to for a while and they don't always get that same impression jay is the genuine article and so anytime very humble nice guy unassuming he's great Super, super nice guy. He'll give you his opinion, but he'll do so in a way that doesn't belittle you or makes you overwhelmed by what he has to say. He's very gracious. I've dealt with him in many ways. And what a lot of people don't realize is as good a guy as he is in front of the microphone, he does a lot of really good work behind and in the, in the editing and the putting. Oh, and you can hear that if you, you pop over and listen to any of these podcasts. Yeah. When I was, when I was on with Dave on his Dave Becker's, and, you know, there's a lot of chitter chatter behind the scenes with Jay. And Dave basically says, I just show up and I do my thing. And Jay makes me sound pretty. And he really does. So, Jay, you deserve all the credit that you got. You got friends here with us. You've been on our show before. The door is always open. And uh, I don't know, maybe Nathan and I will do a little song and dance. Who knows? But uh, we can't wait for the audience to hear what you're giving us to listen to. Yeah, yeah. So, again... It's a great show, and 
I, I concur. Even, you know, we mentioned the technical credits. We mentioned all the people that sort of come together and join these shows. Um, but I do think Jay's approach to movies and his, his enthusiasm and also, again, to say there's a there's a humility there where he'll lay down his opinion. He'll be very vocal about his opinion and stand behind his opinion. But he allows, you know, he does allow the room there for everyone else to, to share their opinions as well. His taste in movies doesn't always match up 100% with mine, but he reminds me in a sense of all the critics that I enjoyed over the years where I could read their review and I could tell whether they were positive or negative on a film, whether I was going to like it or whether I thought I would get anything out of it. And I think that's one thing that's true of Jay. He may rave about a movie and I could think, nope, I'm never going to watch that. Or he may slag a movie and I think, you know, that sounds like my kind of thing. And I think that's what's cool is I feel like no matter what he reviews, he's always... Uh, he covers it in such a way that it gives an accurate depiction of the film in addition to how he felt about it. So I think that's, yeah. I love that. I was going to say his reviews are, are ones that you can trust and he'll always say up front. For example, uh, I listened to him do a review today of Timber Falls and Timber Falls. He goes, most horror fans or thriller fans will give this a six. I'm from West Virginia. That's where this is set. I'm giving it an eight. I'm telling you straight <laughs> up front. I like West Virginia films. So uh, we have a lot of similar horror sensibilities. You know, I think he's he right. Went, Didn't we give it about a six when we reviewed it a few years back? <laughs> I, think, I think you did anyway. Yeah, but a bit lower. I don't remember. But, but it's funny because, you know, he'll he'll tell you honestly, he, he has sensibilities like mine. We like small space horror. We like things that can reality, that can actually happen. You know, I don't know if I agree that Terminator is a slasher, but you know what? Everybody's entitled to their opinion. It's got the DNA. It's got the DNA. I'm just saying. It's got the DNA there. I, I'm not going to. But I don't think I don't think Terminator exists in the form it exists without Halloween. With you take that Absolutely. away, you've got the Outer Limits episode called Soldier from back in the day. Go back and check it out if you don't know what I'm talking about. But that's, <laughs> but again, that's Terminator. Just, yeah. And, 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 and since Jay likes his pig, pig-headed horror... I don't know. Maybe we can do sheep horror or something like in his. There is sheep horror. There's, there's, there's a couple. There's more than one sheep horror. Now that I think about it, it's weird. Anyway, here's, here is Jay Piles with his, one of his favorite science fiction movies. Hi, this is Jason Piles, aka Jay of the Dead, from ConsideringTheCinema.com and HorrorMovieWeekly.com. I'd like to thank Nathan and Bill for inviting me to submit this segment to Phantom Galaxy. <laughs> It's an honor. One of my favorite science fiction films of the last 20 years is Danny Boyle's Sunshine from 2007. I'm sure most of you have seen it, but just in case, I won't reveal any major plot spoilers for Sunshine. And I know that most of you who listen to this podcast are cinephiles, so I'm sure you're well aware of this movie, but I wanted to talk about it because I think it is underpraised and underappreciated, probably because it's a little bit of an imperfect film. Sunshine was written by Alex Garland, who also wrote 28 Days Later. That's another Danny Boyle film. Ex Machina and Annihilation, just to name a few. But the first aspect I wanted to celebrate about Sunshine is its soundtrack. The film score was composed by John Murphy, and the song that you're going to be hearing in the background is titled Adagio in D minor. That's a joint composition between John Murphy and the electronic band Underworld. I believe you can still purchase this song on iTunes Apple Music. Okay, so for those who don't know, the premise of Sunshine goes like this. The story is set a short time in the future, the year 2057. Earth's nearest star, 
our sun is dying. And when the film opens, humankind has already sent a solar-shielded ship named Icarus-1 to drop a nuclear device into the sun to reignite it. But apparently, they did not succeed, and we have lost contact with that first ship. So, our story picks up on board a second ship called Icarus-2, and it is Earth's last chance and final hope, and they have the same mission save our sun in order to save our world. So that's the premise. Now Sunshine has many scenes in the film that depict our crew in awe of the splendor and magnitude and magnificence of the sun. And I feel like this swelling theme, Adagio in D minor, really evokes that awe and wonder. The next thing I want to point out is that so often in science fiction movies, humankind has become too arrogant and too reckless and in one way or the other, they tend to overreach or overstep their bounds of mortality and humanity by wielding science with hubris. And that often results in terrible, life-threatening consequences. Well, what I love about Sunshine is, in this story, we have humankind employing science to try to save ourselves. So at least there's a little more nobility behind this audacious leap to try to change the course of the life of our star. So instead of destroying themselves with science in this movie, it's really the inverse and they're trying to sustain humanity and keep it going. Now real quick, I just want to point out that Sunshine also has an excellent cast. You've got Killian Murphy, you've got Chris Evans, Captain America himself, and what I believe is his best role that I've seen him in. We've got Rose Byrne, Cliff Curtis, Michelle Yao, Hiroyuki Sanada, and you'll know him when you see him, great actor, Benedict Wong, and Mark Strong. So really it's an ensemble effort, and I really appreciate the way that this cast works together. One of my favorite scenarios in the cinema is when we get that backroom conversation about what in the world are we gonna do. It's like a brainstorming session when they're trying to figure out how are we gonna tackle this problem and what are we gonna do to solve it. And so actually my favorite sequence in this film is a heated debate. It's a discussion about what course of action this team is gonna take. Because as I mentioned, they are Earth's final hope. I've got an audio clip for you. I'm I'm actually going to share this part of the film for you. It's like a two-minute clip, so I hope you don't mind. And what I'm going to do to set this up, i got to give you a little bit of context so you can enjoy the clip sufficiently. And I think this is what you would consider a mild spoiler because obviously you know that they're going to find out something about that first ship, Icarus 1. And so as they're approaching Mercury our team actually picks up a stress signal from Icarus 1. And then they realize that in their course, in their trajectory to getting near enough to the sun, slingshotting around Mercury and then getting up close to the sun so they can deliver their payload, they realize that they could actually check in with that ship. And there are reasons for this. I'm not going to go into all of them because some of it is discussed here in this little debate. So this clip of dialogue comes from Danny Boyle's sunshine and it just thrills me to death and my favorite aspect of it just so you know is we have a dilemma presented here and I am obsessed with smart people debating over what to do 
when you have two great arguments on both sides. It's a genuine dilemma. And to some extent, it's a moral dilemma, and that's my favorite. But also, it is a very logistical, sensible debate. So check it out. We're going to pass right by them. Within 10 or 15,000 miles. Can anyone survive? If the shield is intact. We'll be able to see them. Yes. I need to look at all of this pretty carefully, very carefully. But if I had to make a guess right now, I'd say we could adjust our trajectory. We could fly straight to them. But we're not going to do that. Just to make it absolutely clear, there's no way we're going to do that. Do I have to spell it out for you? We have a payload to deliver to the heart of our nearest star. We're delivering that payload because that star is dying. And if it dies, we die. Everything dies. So that is our mission. There is nothing, literally, nothing more important than completing our mission. End of story. He's right. He's right. Of course I'm right. Is anyone here seriously considering otherwise? May I put a counter-argument? No. Captain? Go ahead. It would, of course, be absurd to alter our trajectory to assist the crew of the Icarus One. Even if we knew that some or even all of that crew are still alive, their lives are entirely expendable when seen in the context of our mission as are our own lives. Exactly. However, there is something on board the Icarus One that may be worth the detour. As you pointed out, Mace, we have a payload to deliver. A payload, singular. Now, everything about the delivery and effectiveness of that payload is entirely theoretical. Simply put, we don't know if it's gonna work. But what we do know is this. If we had two bombs, we'd have two chances. You're assuming we'd be able to pilot Icarus One. Yes. Which is assuming that whatever stopped them completing the mission wasn't a fault or damage to the spacecraft. Yes. It's a lot of assumptions. It is. It's a risk assessment. The question is, does the risk of a detour outweigh the benefits of an extra payload? <laughs> so that clip you just heard was from Sunshine. I absolutely love it. And even though that seems like a major aspect of the film, it's actually really, more or less, it's a subplot. So I felt comfortable with sharing it, even if you haven't seen the film, because I'm actually trying to get those who haven't seen the film to at least check it out. And hopefully that will whet your appetite. There are definitely more aspects to this, but that debate and that decision is a huge sort of inciting incident of sorts that leads a chain of events into motion. And I just am obsessed with watching repercussions and consequences of decisions unfold. I just, I love it. But just taking this concept, you could see how this could go wrong because we had a film from 2003 starring Aaron Eckhart called The Core. And basically it was kind of similar. This team had to drill down to the center of the earth and go um, get the core of the earth spinning again. And in terms of science fiction fare, it's not a great film. I still appreciate the core, actually, <laughs> despite myself, but it's not great. And so when you hear this concept of they got to travel to the sun somehow, and then they have to somehow reignite the sun, you're like, yeah, right. Okay, but I'm just saying, this is what people sometimes refer to as quote unquote hard science fiction, which is semi believable, somewhat plausible. I mean, I'm sure if you get these science nerds and astronomers, and of course, there are tons of ways that you can pick even sunshine apart. 
But I'm just trying to tell you that the way this is depicted and the way it's presented is somewhat credible, you know, as long as you don't get too nerdy about it. And another aspect that I love of this, which, you know, especially science fiction films that are set in space, the best ones do this, is they convey how unforgiving space is. It is such an inhospitable environment. And because that the mathematics, I mean, it all has to be precision when you're trying to deal with navigating through space and preserving life and there are so many variables and components to keep track of and i love how this points out how that science and math and space itself all of those things are very unforgiving anyways as i begin to wrap up i will talk about the third act which is where this thing goes off course regrettably i mean this movie would be a 10 out of 10 for me i would be absolutely obsessed with sunshine except in the third act it kind of devolves into pretty standard fare it tries to actually delve into the horror genre which I'm a huge horror fan, let's be clear, but in this movie that's going so well and doing so well with the science fiction genre for the first two acts, I mean, there's enough terrifying stuff, not in the traditional horror sense, but just in the a survival sense. There's enough scary stuff in this movie to make it a thriller, to keep your blood pumping, to make it suspenseful, but then it kind of devolves and you know I say that lovingly toward the horror genre but the third act is not as lofty as the first two acts that precede it but even so Sunshine is a fantastic science fiction film you may even call it a science fiction thriller with some horror elements but for me this movie's an 8 out of 10 it's a must see for science fiction fans and I own it so I would recommend a purchase on this because this is one of those movies that you will, at least I do, I have a hankering to pop it in every five years or so. So I think you should check it out. And just so you know, there is a very reasonably priced Blu-ray version of Sunshine, but no 4K yet, unfortunately. You can also rent this, stream it on Prime for like four bucks in the United States. So yeah, I hope you'll check out Sunshine. I feel like it's one of those noble science fiction films where we have very imperfect, flawed human beings, just like all of us, ordinary people trying to do extraordinary things under extreme pressure and circumstances for the survival of humankind. And those are my thoughts on Danny Boyle's Sunshine. I just want to thank Nathan, Bill, and Phantom Galaxy. <laughs> for uh, allowing me to share my thoughts on this film with you. This is Jason Piles, a.k.a. Jay of the Dead, from ConsideringTheCinema.com and HorrorMovieWeekly.com. Over and out. Okay, and again, uh, thank you so much, Jay, for that. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do that. Again, I apologize for the lateness of this. It was going to be a larger episode put together, but what we ultimately decided is to give everyone a showcase and some of these people now have new podcasts or new material that we want to be able to sort of focus on that and allow that a spotlight for them. So check out uh, Jay's shows. They will be located in the show notes here. And also we'll put links to some of the other episodes he's done with it. He, some of the other episodes he's done with us, including uh, he did a uh, he did an episode about Dark City that was a lot of fun. He also read a Christmas horror story for us in our narrated horror section, and we have that up on the show notes as well. So check it out. And again, 
Thank you very much, Jay. So, Bill, are you ready to talk some some new movies? Well, talk some new, some old, some in between. Some movies. Let's talk the... some movies. <laughs> oh, movies. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I mean, we talk about old people or yeah. old socks, but that's not going to be nearly as interesting. No, no. And I know the audience likes hearing us just kind of ramble on about movies, so I ramble with the best of them. So let's get her going, Mr. Bartlebaugh. Yeah, why don't you uh, you get us started, Bill? What is your uh, what do you want to bring to us first this week? Okay, well, I'm going to bring one. I'm a little bit late to the party. I watched it, I don't know, maybe a month, month and a half after it came out. But I finally got around to watching the 2022 version of Scream. Now, to set it up, right off the bat, the new poster looks cool. It's kind of like an homage to the old with a hint of the new. It's dark. It's got ghost face in the background. It's got the characters in the foreground with the house. Kind of looks spooky. You got the sign for Woodsboro. You kind of know what you're getting. That's the thing with the screen films. You know, the second, the third, the fourth. You know what you're kind of getting, but you won't like the journey and you want to see how you get there. So the IMDb description is 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new ghost face emerges. And Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I mean, this is, a, I wouldn't say a sequel so much as it's just a continuation of the series. And they do Which try to bring, I guess it is a sequel. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I thought it was Scream 5, to be honest, until I realized uh, they just call it Scream. Yeah, I think this one more than others really is sort of Scream 5, you know, because because of how long that series has been going and how it sort of has always come back and has been tracking with those characters. This definitely is coming a bit after, but I, it does feel a little bit more like a sequel, I think, than, say, like, the reboot of, like, the, not reboot, it like, for example, the last Ghostbusters movie, which sort of was a sequel, but it was mostly a reboot of the series right that happens to fold the other movies in yeah th this one does follow a logical timeline yeah yeah that that if you did watch the first one and for whatever reason you didn't see two three four you wouldn't fall out of place watching this one okay so this was directed by matt bedinelli open who had done a segment of the movie southbound which was a pretty good little film and ready or not it, and Tyler Gillette, who was pretty much the same. They obviously work together. It brings back Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette. It has Melissa Barrera, Jack Quaid, who was in The Hunger Games, and Logan Lucky. It has Mike Ma Mikey Madison, who was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Addams Family. It has a, a, a larger cast, a lot of ensembles, smaller type characters. But the main people are those who I've mentioned. And it has a fun intro with an homage to the first scream in a call that opens up very similar to the Barrymore type scenario of the first one. So what happens is the after the initial call and some emerging action right off the bat, kind of like in the uh, first one, Oh, by the way, the one character says that her favorite film is The Babadook, which, I mean, I'll question that. But anyways, we don't go faces back. So Tara Carpenter was stabbed. She survives, and her sister Sam and friends visit her in the hospital. 
but we know Sam has had some mental health struggles. And so basically the attacks begin again. Ghostface is back. The characters have a backstory, which will link to the first film. And David Arquette is brought back into the fold as Dewey Riley. And he's also interested along with Sam and her friends, who's doing the killing, how they're happening, why they're happening at what links they have to the first one. And there's an, you can tell this one is having a little bit of fun with itself. It knows what it is, but you get into a horror debate with the friends and David Arquette about the sensibilities of horror movies these days. Cause they get into a debate on the requel, which I had never heard that term until I seen this, the requel and talking about, is it a reboot? Is it a sequel? Something can be a requel. For example, Ghostbusters. Uh, Sam has an, let's just say, has an inner dialogue going. And I'll just leave it at that. And Ghostface continues to kill. And people, as you know, in these kind of films, start getting pegged off. There's a group of people in their, I would say, in their early to mid-20s. And they start to die off. And it all kind of culminates into a large final third of the film where the action ramps up, you know, and there's also like an emphasis on things like you remember from the first couple, they talk about these rules of serial killers and they kick in. Okay. The final act to me is the best. There's some really good death scenes. There's some really good uh, kills. There's some scenes in a hospital that's almost reminiscent of some of the Halloween films. Halloween 2 specifically. I, I don't want to dig too deep. Because if you haven't seen this film, I want you to see and discover for yourself. I thought the opening act of, the, of it kind of set it up nice. I thought it kind of lost its way a little bit in the middle. And I thought it kind of ramped itself back up at the end. The characters are endearing. Our old friends from the first one pretty much come back. Nev Kemble comes back. Courtney Cox come back. David Arquette has his role again. And it's interesting to see how they weave in and out. Are they the same characters? There's some love interest issues in this film. Oh, not issues, but uh, storylines, minor storylines people kind of reacquainting themselves at the end of the day. Is it as good as the first one? No, the first one is an absolute classic. Perhaps my favorite film of the nineties. Is this one better than number two? It's more in that vein. I give this one a seven and a half, you know, it's worth watching. People who love the, the series will want to keep watching it. Those who aren't into it will still probably get something out of it. It's a, a fun popcorn movie for the 90s, from the 90s to today. You have that direct link. People that are in the 38 to 50-year-old age group, this will bring back flashbacks of when you first saw the film. The characters are interesting enough that you keep going and you keep watching. 
And it culminates in a scene in the house with a few twists and turns along the way. That's all I'll say. Nathan, oh, was I fair to this? What are your thoughts on this film? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think so. I saw this movie back when it first released in theaters the first weekend. And it was actually one of those few but precious instances where my wife and I actually actually got to go to a movie without the children. <laughs> And uh, we had a weekend away and we went to see the movie and we had a ton of fun watching it. We, uh, we enjoyed obviously the other screen films. I scream is one of those series. This is now the fifth installment and the other four were all directed by Wes Craven who, you know, passed sadly a few years back, but the first four to all to some degree, I enjoyed those movies. There's some that aren't that great. I, I think the third one is not uh, particularly strong it's not even quite all that good i still think though at the end of the day i enjoyed watching it and scream 4 was a movie that when i first saw it i was excited to see it and i saw it and i remember thinking well it was okay i think that movie's grown on me over time i think that they're actually it's a fun series it 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 established right off the bat or re-established off the bat i think slashers again it also kind of brought meta horror into its own in a way that was sort of obnoxiously aped for a few years it gave us those uh, sort of teen slashers of the 90s, that whole resurgence. But after that, as those things faded away, Scream sort of stuck around. A part of that is, I think, because of Wes and his uh, what he did with the series and then his good-natured sensibility that I think he brought to it. Even though this is a movie with slashers, with kills, with gore, there's still a lot of humor. There's a decent amount of heart in most of the uh most of the installments, a lot of that does have to do, I think you were just mentioning this, Bill, comes down to this cast of characters that they've been able to bring from each film to the next. Yes, we've lost some of them along the way, but when you bring this core group back together, when you have uh, Courtney, um, you have Courtney Cox coming back, and you have David Arquette coming back, and you have Nev Campbell, uh, and there's a couple other characters that return as well, but those three right there, they were sort of the heart of the series. They bring that back in this film, and even though this collective here, Radio Silence, that's the, the guys that directed it, uh, they're you know they're not Wes Craven. I think they do an admirable job of making this film feel a piece of the Scream series in a way where you can look at some of this. I think that Wes might have done some of these things different, but you know what? This is a very, you know, it's reverent, but it's not too reverent. I think it takes a couple of uh, chances with some of the material. Some of it pays off, some of it doesn't as much. But I think you're right on target. This is a fun movie. You have a lot of fun with that opening sequence that is addressing the the current state of horror it talks about the elevated horror and some of it could be eye rolling, but they do it in such a, they do it in such a sort of loving wink, wink, nudge, nudge way that the movie never seems obnoxious. And that was, that's the one thing about the scream films. Unlike some of these other too cool for school uh, horror thrillers, I never felt the scream movies uh, did that. And I think a lot of that is because of Craven. He, he kind of knew when to push in and make the film just a straight up slasher movie that was affectionate and when to sort of pull the curtain back a little bit. And they do the same thing here in an effective way. I kind of agree with you. I think that it starts out really strong and you're getting into it and you're, you're happy to see the new characters or excuse me, you're happy to see the old characters back. And then you are kind of getting into the new characters a little bit. These characters, you start to connect with them. And I certainly connected with them a little bit more than I did in say, you know, the recent Texas chainsaw massacre. And it follows that scream template while I think the thing that I noticed here is the skills are just a little more vicious than I remember them being in any of the other films. I think there's a couple of, uh, of pretty intense 
kill sequences. Not we're not just talking about gore, but the way the scenes are staged. There's one scene, uh, you know, the ghost face knives do some serious work in this movie. It does drag a little bit in the middle. I think also the middle is where we start to get into some elements of the film that when you get to the last third, which is in all other ways very good, there were a couple of decisions they make in this movie that I just didn't like as a fan of the series. I think that when you look at the film and all the pieces are together, there are certain decisions that are made at the script level that I just don't think are well thought out. And they just, they don't look like plot holes per se, but they leave the movie open in a way that feels kind of sloppy to me. I had some issues with that with the recent Halloween Kills movie where it just feels like this could, this script could have done with another pass. And I think there are a couple things that they do. There's a long time fan. I can say, yeah, I get that you did this, but I just don't think it was satisfying that I don't think this particular way you wrapped up this element worked for me. But that's, again, I think a lot of people are going to feel that way. But overall, I, as a fan of the series, I was satisfied. I think they did a pretty good job of bringing this back and not feeling, making it feel like a just trite rollout of the material. It felt like a good extension. My wife, who likes the series and really enjoyed the movie, we got into it. There were things we had issues with. I think the performances are all pretty good. Particularly, it's fun to see the, all of them back. And I got to give, I think David Arquette is kind of the, you know, almost MVP of, of, of when you're bringing the characters back here. He really generates a lot of uh, heart early on when he's initially, he's the first one that they kind of come back to and bring back in. And so it was good to see him back. And I think in some ways they give him a little more focus than he has gotten in some of the other movies. So I really enjoyed it. I don't want to say too much more about it, except that you can find it on streaming right now. You can rent it. I think you can buy it as well. And it will be on physical media very soon, I believe. But um, it's to me, it was a worthy sequel. It's a movie I'm looking forward to watching again. It's so far I only have seen it the one time at the theater. Uh, but it's, it's good. I give it a 7.5 as well. And I think that if you're a fan of the series, prob the chances are you're going to enjoy this one just like the old films it works as a sort of deconstruction of movies i think recall is something that this movie sort of coins as far as i know but i don't spend as much time on twitter and everywhere else so i don't know but it's certainly an idea that's been bouncing around everyone's heads what do we call these things it's not like we were just doing <laughs> initially is it a sequel is it a reboot what is it and you know they kind of they they put a few points on these things but they, it never feels uh, particularly labored. And the only thing I would have liked is maybe a, a better pass at the script because it got so much of the rest of it right. There was, there was a nice touch at the end, but if you watch the end credits right after it ends, it says for Wes. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that one of the main – I also noticed that one of the characters is named Wes as well in the film. So, um, yeah, it, it, a lot of fun. I think that it was – it was probably the first new horror movies I saw this year, and I was I was quite happy with it. I think it's a it's a solid sequel. Yeah, you can or do recall. a lot worse with <laughs> requel. You could do yeah. a lot worse with ninety minutes of your time. Yeah, yeah, you could. Um, so my guess, my movie. That's not to say that the next movie I'm talking about is a case of this, but I just recently we have another horror movie. Uh, released two theaters that I want to talk about. I got a chance um, last weekend to see Studio 666, which is a horror film, a horror comedy that stars the Foo Fighters, uh, Dave Grohl's band. And the film is a kind of takeoff of, do you remember back in the day when uh, 
Led Zeppelin, they they made a big deal about recording in a haunted house or something. They were going to record an album in a haunted house. And, yeah, you know, there, to kind of get there, to... There, yeah, there have been a lot of uh, albums and very famous albums put out in some large, dark, empty houses that, you know, have good... Questionable, but... uh, infamous places. Yes, yes. And, you know, back in an isolated area, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's the basic uh, gist, I think, behind this film, which, uh, you know, it deals with the Foo Fighters, and they, they're they looking for this idea for the 10th album. They really don't quite have one. Dave Grohl says, hey, how about we go to this big mansion in Encino? It's got sort of a checkered past, and we're going to uh, go into it, and we're going to record the next album. We'll get the inspiration through there, and these horrible things have happened in the past, and then maybe that'll give us some inspiration, get some energy going. Uh, and it does indeed get some energy going. It actually results in, I don't think this is much of a spoiler to say, that we have supernatural occurrences. And then eventually we have some possession going on, which involves a kind of funny shtick where Grohl, which in a lot of ways seems like one of the, the nicest uh, you know musicians out there, gets possessed by one of the entities inside of the house and... What you what you get after that is a lot of zany funs directed by B.J. McDonald, done with a very knowing, affectionate spirit, again, towards classic horror movies. And by and large, this is exactly what it looks like on the tin. This is a band getting together and trying to have fun with their image. You get some of their music in the film, and you get a kind of funny riff on what it must be like to... Or you get a funny riff on what it's like to have that creative spirit sort of frustrated and you're trying to come up with something new and you're trying to bring something into the world and in this case they cross they cross the streams here with a horror movie where something else uh, uh demonically wants to come into the world and you're trying to decide well if i get a good album out of it is it ultimately worth this and so you get you get a lot of fun gore more gore than i was expecting very kind of gross splattery kind of gore uh there's a fun scene involving a grill here that's better better for you to see than me to describe and how is uh how is taylor hawkins in this a pr- pretty good so here's the thing everybody and, you know, Jenna Ortega's in this film, too. You've got Will Forte. You've got some other people. And then, of course, you have uh, the Foo Fighters themselves. And Grohl is sort of front and center with that. But here's the thing. I think that the the, the Foo Fighters as a group, Taylor Hawkins and, and Rami Jaffe and the rest of them, they all sort of give off. Uh, there's a fun, charming vibe to seeing them here. Are they actors? Not exactly. But... They are playing versions of themselves, which you've seen this kind of thing in movies before, and they do a reasonable job of it. Do I want to see 10 movies with the Foo Fighters in different situations? Not particularly, but they're perfectly entertaining here, watching them play off of each other. And it gets more fun watching these other guys like Hawkins and uh, and Jaffe when they have to play off of the fact that now Grohl is possessed. And then, is this a good thing? Can we work with this or not? And Grohl himself is having a great time. He's got some horror teeth in, and he's just going, they, they kind of go for it. The thing about the movie is that it it actually wants to be a horror movie at the same time. Meaning, once you get beyond the general affability of the situation and the kind of fun, uh, you know, sort of, meta humor that's going on it's very leisurely it takes a while for that stuff to get going and you're kind of having fun with Grohl and the gore 
then the movie sort of decides, you know what, we're actually going to make this a, a haunted house story. We're going to delve into what's going on in the past of that house. We're going to develop some mythology. We're going to get some actual scares or some tension going in here. And I'm not sure that that stuff necessarily works because I thought the movie was quite funny. I think the movie is just has a nice, fun chill spirit to it because that's kind of how I feel about the Foo Fighters. If you like the Foo Fighters, I think you're going to kind of almost by default enjoy this movie to an extent. If you're looking for a more serious horror film, you're not going to get that here, but the movie does attempt to be, this isn't just a whole bunch of gags and the Foo Fighters are there at the center and that's kind of the, the, the gist. They try to make a legitimate horror film here. I'm not certain that that 100% works. It's a little bit longer than it needs to be. Some of the sequences go on just a little bit long. Uh, you kind of feel that sometimes the director is more comfortable with just letting these guys riff on what it's like to try and come up and get the cre creative juices rolling when you don't exactly know what direction you're going in. There's a fun scene where... Uh, Grohl is trying to describe to everybody this song that he hears in his head, and that's one of the best scenes of the movie. But the horror stuff is fun. You're going to have a good time, I think. I had a great time. I was smiling, but at the end, I kind of just wanted it to be weirder. I wanted it to go further out there. I wanted it to go full bore, uh, more in like a Peter Jackson vein of things. And if you see the film, you'll see where I'm going with this. And there's times when I wanted to... to amp up the almost spinal tap satire aspects that seem to be going for but it kind of isn't like that it just is sort of a fun low-key good time that uh that features all the things that are there in the trailer it's it's what it says on the tin it's a horror comedy with the Foo Fighters I wish it was just a little bit stronger but you know what I can't really argue with it it was a good fun time at the movies I give this a seven out of ten and if you like the Foo Fighters, you're going, you're most likely going to enjoy the film. And Grohl was quite entertaining in his in his role, which is a little bit larger than the other than the other two guys. But they they create an ambiance of the movie that's just fun, has a carnival sort of aspect to it. Yeah, it's one that I do want to see. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I definitely one is a fan of the Foo Fighters. But two, I like their personalities, like Taylor Hawkins and Dave Grohl. And Pat Smear, like they're absolute blasts, and so their personalities. And I also noticed they're under writers. Uh, Dave Grohl is given a writing credit, and it's based upon a story by Dave Grohl. Yeah, so Dave yeah. Grohl must have written this out. Now, what form that story is, whether it's like an animated novel, a comic, or an actual long form story, I'm not sure. But he obviously had this idea percolating for a while, and you know. I saw an interview with him. If you've ever seen a TV uh, show on um, YouTube called the hot ones. Yes. The yeah. hot ones is where they eat uh, varying levels of higher degree of chicken wings and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And he said, he basically had this story and I think they were recording an album or they were fooling around in the studio or whatever. And he said, you know what? We're here. Let's, do a movie. How much can it cost, you know, to create an independent horror movie? <laughs> and and you from get there, that vibe in this film, you get that vibe that that's kind of it, it. It it was blossomed out of this idea that they clearly all kind of shared a basic vision for, and then they kind of go for it, and it starts out as a lark and a fun lark, and then at some point they're like, okay, well, we this needs to be an actual movie with an actual story, and I give them credit for that ambition, but you kind of wonder. What if it had just been more shenanigans if they had just sort of gone for it and and then made a movie that maybe was a Foo Fighters, you know, uh, album slash music video experience with some horror elements? You wonder about it. But you know what? 
I'm glad that it exists. I think it is fun and it does what it was supposed to do. It entertained me. I think that if you're, if you're, if this is up your alley, if you're a fan of the band, I, I could see that this could be a go to the theater to see a movie. Otherwise I would recommend uh, streaming or rental for sure. It's uh, now, it's do you think you this, this movie would have benefited from six months worth of rewrites and more thought to the plot or just the improv and the way it was written gives it a charm? I think here's the thing. I don't know about the rewrites and everything because I think there's a spontaneity to the movie that's that's there now, but you want it to just be a little bit more. I think what's honestly kind of lacking is just that the that most of the people involved here, I don't think, um, have maybe made too many movies before. So I know so that McDonald's... It may not has, have improved it. It may not have improved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I think everybody, you know, exactly. Like, McDonald, I think this might be his first... Um, he directed Hatchet 3. So he's done some films yeah. and stuff. But there's just a feeling where the movie could have maybe... It's pushing into that territory that usually belongs to a director that's a little bit more out there, a little bit more short of what they want. This movie at some point is like that guitar riff where they're just riffing and they keep riffing and ripping. Everybody's having a good time. And you're like, yeah, let's just keep going. And in a moment, you're very happy. But when it ends, it's sort of like, well, we went a lot of different places, but did we really arrive anywhere? <laughs> and so that's what this is. It's a fun sort of get together jam session. That's kind of a horror jam co comedy jam session. That's kind of what this movie well, is. You know, it kind of reminds me of like a uh, Richie Blackmore starts diddling around on the guitar. And at the end of the day, you've got smoke on the water. Are yeah, you happy you're not, with it? Yeah. You're not going to walk out of this and say, Hey, these Foo Fighter guys, they're, they're bona fide actors, but you're going to walk out of it and say, Hey, that seems like a, a fun group of guys that I'd love to hang out with sometime as long as they weren't legitimately possessed. And uh, I was just going over the crew and the uh, acting uh, people that they had in, in the, and I noticed they got Carrie King from Slayer. Yeah, yep, like, yep. Oh, awesome, good buddies. <laughs> well, the director B.J. McDonald also did a documentary about Slayer. He so did. There's indeed. the connection yes, right yeah. there. But they also have Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie, yeah, I do. <laughs> the Lionel Richie sequence, I kind of want to leave for people to okay. discover because it's one of the better jokes of the film, actually. <laughs> but I mean, they also got like Will Forte, who's a quality yeah, actor. Yeah. And Jeff Garland, who you've seen in a thousand, what was that one? He was in that one where him and Eddie Murphy ran that um, daycare. One of the many daddy daycare films, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, in one of those. So, I mean, there's a guy, you know, Whitney Cummings has a, uh, you know, a curriculum vitae as well. So they do have some people in there. So I am getting more and more intrigued about watching this. Just, I think you're going to have a good time with it. Again, you have to kind of set aside horror and understand it's full-blown horror comedy it really is but yeah. i that's my thing i like horror comedy so bill what else do you have all right so i have one that's 2022 as well and again one that i went into absolutely blind it was a sunday morning this past sunday i i love my 90 minute films that i can whip in whip out then i go play with my daughter and do my crap around the house so i grabbed one that was streaming i can't remember where it was for the life of me and it's called Shut In. An hour, 29 minutes. It's got that nice, tight time frame. It's directed by DJ Caruso. Oh, yeah. If that, na if that name rings a bell, he did one not that long ago you might have heard of, Two for the Money. 
And he also did I Am Number 4. But fans of the genre will probably know him best from directing Disturbia. Yep, that's what I was going to think of, Disturbia. And but I also he did looked one called at what Salt been... and Sea too that I really like with uh, Val Kilmer, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one too. And but I was looking at his what he's done in the last little while. He's got some gaps here and there, or he does some TV work, and then he does a long form film, and then he does some episodic TV work. Like the guy has his hands in a few different pots, but when he finally fo- finally focuses on a long form film, you know they usually have pretty good quality. Uh, the lead actress in in here is Rainy Quali. Uh, Rainy Quali was probably best known as being in the the all female version of Ocean's Eight. Uh, she did a, uh, an episode years ago of Mad Men. Uh, it's got Jake Horowitz, who you and I both know from Vast of Night. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And he was also in uh, the remake of Castle Freak, and an actor that we're both quite familiar with, but I hadn't seen in ages a Vincent Gallo. I have not seen Vincent Gallo in a while either. That that I can think of. No, I mean, he was in Buffalo 66. He was part of the crew in Goodfellas. Time ago, yeah. He was, he was in the funeral, but I mean, he hasn't done a lot. Not in forget the, the Brown bunny. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't done a lot in the last 10 years that you kind of go, ah, but then you look at him and you go, he's still not that old. He's just, I guess, been waiting in the weeds. But this is one of those movies where there's not a lot of characters. There's literally five characters, and two of them are child actors. So it's basically, uh, well, I'll give you the IMDb synopsis. When a young mother is barricaded inside a pantry by her violent ex-boyfriend, she must use ingenuity to protect her two small children from escalating danger while finding an escape. That's actually not bad, to be quite frankly. Um, here's how I put it. So there's this mom, played by Rainy Qualley. She's struggling to get by. She lives in a rural house in Texas, and she doesn't have a, a really fluid income. She's living off making products from apples that grow in her yard and the apples go rotten from time to time. She has two young kids and she isn't with the father, the father played by Jake Horowitz, who we later find out is a recovering meth addict. And he's a violent deadbeat kind of guy, but he is the father. They have a strained relationship at best. He doesn't live in the house but he does show up from time to time. They've both gone to rehab and Kuali has successfully kicked the habit from the last time that she used it. And all of a sudden, you know, we kind of get this intro story. She has a pantry in the house and she accidentally locks herself in. It's got one of those, it's an old building or an old house with a wooden pantry and the lock kind of flops in and out and she locks herself in from time to time. And she has to get her daughter to jiggle the door to get it back out. Now, uh, Horowitz shows up with his friend, Vincent Gallo. Vincent Gallo plays a real scumbag in this film. Surprise. Which, <laughs> surprise. He does in pretty much all of his films. You know, he hasn't shaved probably in two months prior for the film. He's scruffy looking. Horowitz looks quite emaciated 
and they both show up and they kind of rattle uh what's her name quali around a little and things get a little bit physical you can tell that horowitz loves his kids and he once really did care for quali but he's not a great guy he slaps her around a bit he's still addicted to the meth despite going through rehab and his friend vincent gallo is even worse and gallo is a a buyer of the meth that Horowitz basically sells and creates. But Kuali's trying to make life better. She's going to be moving from her house because she can't afford it. She's off to go somewhere else. And then there comes a physical altercation between Kuali and Horowitz and Gallo. And they decide that they're going to make her pay for some of the, what they feel are inequities of what happened in the breakup. And they put wood over the door and lock her in to the uh, pantry. So she's in the pantry. They leave the house and the, she can't get out. And the two young kids, one, one, maybe three to four. And one is a new, uh, not a newborn, but is an infant who still needs diaper changes as such. And it suddenly becomes a small space, single location horror. Will you survive in a three by six pantry without any equipment to get out? And then you have your two young children to survive in this big old house with a storm coming on their own and can she get out as a parent it really bothers you it already even bothers not, me just hearing you talk about it <laughs> and and as i mean even if you're not a parent i mean she's an average sized if not smaller woman trying to get into this out of this place the pantry has jars of glass you know apples and whatever sundry items are in there but that's about it like there's no bathroom in there. There's no other food other than stuff that's stuck in these jars. And you see a Bible on the wall. There's a few re religious uh, items here and there, but she's trying to escape. And not only that, what scares the hell out of you is the daughter crying and complaining through the door. Yes. That sounds and terrible. And Quali trying to get her to find whatever she can around the house. She the husband has obviously taken the cell phone away because she can't find the cell phone. The husband has obviously taken away the purse because she can't find the purse. Uh, she can't find any items. At one point, the daughter finds a screwdriver and slides it under the door. I want to tap around a few things, tiptoe around a few things, because I don't want to give main thrusts of the uh, storyline away. But let's just say Vincent Gallo makes another appearance looking for drug money. And what happens when he knows she's still in the door or inside the pantry? And there's a storm of brewing outside and the wind is going and it's getting cold. It gets really tense. It's really actually well acted. Gallo makes an appearance and he is an absolute scumbag. But 
you're somehow ingratiated towards the guy. You you don't feel for him and the plate and what he's doing, but he's one of those kind of characters. You just want to see what happens. But I will tell you this. It is a very uncomfortable watch. And you ultimately wonder, will Quali fall back into drugs? Or will she fight the itch and keep going for her kids? Will she survive? Will she get out? Will the kids be saved? Will she get justice? Pretty good film. And I will say the end is satisfying. I'm not going to say which way it goes, but it will be satisfying to one of the characters. I give this a seven and a half. I can easily see it going up to an eight on a second watch. It probably won't make my top 10 of the year, but I can see it possibly being an honorable mention. So Nathan, if you haven't seen this one, I think this is one that you're probably going to want to see at some point. Yeah, it sounds pretty interesting. And uh, I think Caruso, he has some some talent. I haven't seen everything he's done. And there's been a couple of movies of his that haven't kind of blown my hair back. I did think Disturbia was a fun sort of takeoff of Rear Window. And I do enjoy these movies when they're done well that sort of deal with one sort of concept of being trapped in a place you know I've, I've seen movies where people have been trapped underneath the cover of a of a of a public swimming pool i've seen movies where people have been trapped in a empty drained out pool with you know alligators or crocodiles and i've seen movies with people trapped in a box under the ground and in a in a house with a tiger you know and uh, did, did you ever see that one where they were trapped in a sauna and the temperature keeps rising <laughs> That one I did not see last year. Yeah, we had a really, teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> we had a, a good one last year. Um, that with, with the uh, with the, the lady that was trapped inside of the life pod. You know, it was like a sci-fi film. That was a, okay. the cryopod. That was a lot of fun. But this sounds a. Uh, it sounds like a movie that's compelling to me because of that concept. That idea of just being. Uh, I don't know if as a parent you've ever found yourself in a situation where in a moment you, and sometimes due to maybe your own error, you, you know, either you've locked yourself out of the house, the kid's still inside or, or something of that nature. Uh, and sometimes it's only for a split second, but there's this idea of like, wait a minute, I need, you know, I'm separated from the child and the child's not in a place to be able to, uh, you know, to protect themselves. And you want, you know, that's sort of what's occupying your mind, but you also realize that I've got to get this together and I need to get, get out of the situation. Uh, I've never been in something where, you know, again, it's that kind of immediate, like knee jerk fear. You look around, is the child there or did they get outside or whatever? And then, you know, your worst fears are sort of assuaged when you realize, oh no, it's not that bad. It kind of just ups my blood pressure when I watch a movie like this, where there's that that sustained tension because you can't get to the child, you know? There is one point, I don't want to give too much away, but there's one point where the one daughter, I think she's three or four, and the younger brother, who's, I don't know, maybe one, needs to get his diaper changed. And she has to walk them through that. And then they get hungry. And she, you know, and being a girl who's three or four, she's hungry as well. And like those kind of things. Every parent's been there where their kid is hungry, they can't help it or whatever. It pulls on you. And it was an uncomfortable watch. You kind of sold me on this because I think the fact that the film and the filmmakers have thought to include those details and those elements uh, make this really compelling to me. The idea that you're like, this isn't just 
pausing for the horror or the suspense, but there's a, okay, I have to walk the kid through changing the diaper or how do they get food and stuff like that. That seems like a really compelling element that, uh, that I mean, it intrigues me. It means that someone was thinking the movie through a little bit beyond what is the next like suspense beat. So I, I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. I, I mean, you're talking about me who's watched people be sliced up and diced and whatever. That is nowhere near as uncomfortable as this one. So give it a watch. Like, it's not going to make you cry. I mean, probably not, but it, it, <laughs> will make, likely. It, it will make you go, you know, it might make your stomach get a bit tight at times. So yeah, give that one a while. I give it a seven and a half. Nice. Nice. Very cool. Well, the so next what you got, Mr. Bartabaugh. Yeah. The next movie I'll review is also a brand new movie that came out uh, this past weekend and it will stay for now within the sort of horror thriller, uh, in, with the horror thriller world. And we're going to talk about a film that actually was at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. I saw quite a few films there. This, unfortunately, was not one of them. I wasn't able to get in to see it. But it is now available on Hulu. And it's a film called Fresh from 2022. It's directed by Mimi Cave. I am going to really kind of dance around the full synopsis for this film because this is definitely a movie that you're going to want to experience sort of as no pun intended fresh as possible you're going to walk in with as little information so i'm going to give you just a little bit of information and then i'll i'm going to talk a little bit more about why i think the movie works i think i could do that without so there'll be no spoilers here but uh here's the basic synopsis i pulled this one from letterboxd Frustrated by scrolling dating apps only to end up on lame, tedious dates, Noah takes a chance by giving her number to the awkwardly charming Steve after a produce section meet-cute at the grocery store. And quite honestly, as far as a setup goes, that's basically what you need to know. It, enco it encompasses about the first 30 minutes of this film, which really feel like a sort of awkward uh, and slightly cynical romantic comedy. And it's funny because the credits for this film don't actually come up on screen until about 30 minutes in, at which point I think it's probably fair to say and not surprising to say that the movie takes a definitive turn into something else. And it's one of those, uh, I wouldn't say it's a bait and switch because you know walking into this most likely, if you've even seen a poster or anything about the film, that it's going to not be, you know, likely to be remade into a Jennifer Lopez comedy next month. But I think the nature of what happens and what goes on in the film uh, is best left to sort of be discovered. But just be assured that this movie does take a turn and it changes into a film that has maybe a little bit more in common with the movie you just described in terms of a, a film taking place within a sort of um, contained space and there are thriller and suspense elements to it. It's also a very healthy dose of dark comedy here but let's talk a little bit more uh about uh the cast and what's going on in the film so daisy edgar jones plays noah and she's also joined in this film by steve who's played by sebastian stan if sebastian stan is currently right now on the uh the the tv series uh pam and tommy and you can you can find him there but he's also the Winter Soldier from the Captain um, the Captain America series, part of the the MCU and the Marvel Universe. And if you've seen Stan over there, it, it is either of those characters. 
this one's going to be a little bit of a departure. Uh, when you first meet him and you first see him, he comes off, uh, he comes off very charming. You can tell that he's a guy who is not fully giving all the details about himself, but he seems genuine. He seems like he really likes Noah, and their relationship gets kicked off after a very awkward, uh, the movie opens with one of them as awkward and just kind of like, uh, socially mortifying first dates I've ever seen, and not a date that involves Steve, but this date that Noah is on the opening of the film that kind of, uh, I think it captures everyone's basic feelings towards sort of blind dating or, or internet dating. And I think it was one of those scenes I watch and you just, you become, uh, if you're somebody who has not been in the dating scene for a while, you're sort of thankful that you're not. <laughs> and it's very effective. I think that the performances here between Daisy Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan are right on point early going. And then when the movie flips and becomes something else, uh, I just have to say the movie goes some pretty bonkers, crazy places. It gets very wild. It gets very weird. And the minute that the, that script flips, which is just about the time that the, the, the title card comes up and you almost get a whole new movie after that you're in for a wild ride. It's that keeps upping the ante but doing it in a very plausible way so that you keep in proximity these two characters and you're watching this relationship for what it is continue to develop. And it's, uh, it's weird. It's strange. It gets pretty, uh, it, it gets pretty intense and gruesome, but it gets that it, it, it's hard to say. We're not talking about a movie with gore per se to describe what's, what's going on here. The filmmakers are very, very clever with what they do and what they show and what the emotions are going for at any given minute. And Mimi Cave here, she does some very fascinating things with making you think about very, um, very simple things you take for granted. For example, you know, dating or the simple the simple act of sitting down and having a, a meal as a couple, that kind of thing becomes very charged and, and, and very surreal in a movie like Fresh. Again, you'll notice I'm not talking a lot about what happens, but it, it, it gets very strong in some ways, and yet it keeps a through line about being about these two people and what happens to them and with them and their interactions with one another in a way that is always very compelling. You're very much into the story. There are other characters that come in and out of it, and I've seen this kind of film done before where you've got... Uh, a character in a scenario where they are moving inexorably towards something terrible and something kind of awful and maybe something also just beyond beyond imagination. And when a movie like this is done, sometimes it just goes it goes off the rails and it loses a sense of what it is. Fresh manages to sort of freak you out a little bit and and get you to chuckle darkly in places and yet be totally invested till the very last frame of the movie. And they pull that off really well. Stan kind of He's doing great, great work here, but so is Jones. In, the, in again, the kind of characters each one of them embodies. She is this person who is kind of given up on really finding anybody that she's going to be compatible with. She wants to be smart, but she also wants to kind of put herself out there a little bit to actually take some chances and know that she's given this every possible opportunity. And then she can look. She looks back at herself and says, "Wow, if I." you know, why did I do this? And and so, but she's always sort of moving forward. And Stan's character is, he's very affable. He always uh, walks into each situation 
looking for a way to sort of charm you. And as the movie continues with its situations, his attempts get more and more bizarre. Uh, he has a, almost like a young Bruce Greenwood thing going on here in the movie um, that that uh, that I sort of appreciated. It made me think back too that Bruce, Bruce Greenwood was the dead body on the floor in a movie like Gerald's Game. Again, there are some similarities to this film. I don't want to say any more about Fresh other than I highly recommend it. It's one of the smartest uh, horror thriller movies I've seen this year, I think. And it really worked for me. I'm going to I'm gonna go kind of high with this. I'm going to give it an 8.5 because I think everything it does, you're into it. You're kind of grossed out at points. You're cheering for certain characters. Uh, there's other characters you're ready to see. Uh, you know, a little bit of the old justice, I think, as you as you reference, Bill. But you, and, and at the end of the day, it made me actually think about some things uh, without without being a, it's it's this is not a profound movie we're talking about, but it's a movie that kind of puts its pulse on a couple of of social and societal elements, and it does so without being preachy. It's just a really fun movie, but it is it is strong. I would recommend. Maybe, you know, don't make this a dinner and a movie kind of deal. Well, it depends who you're taking out, I guess. Uh, it does. I'm just saying. Uh, you know, I don't say that often. <laughs> yeah. And I, I haven't seen this, but it's one that's been getting a lot of buzz lately. I've heard a few things, which I don't want to reveal on here. But it looks like my kind of speed. Do you feel like I danced around it sufficiently? I, I feel I, like I hope I didn't ruin I, it I think anybody. you danced around a bit and... Let's just say, you know, everybody who listens kind of knows my sensibilities. And this one, I have a good feeling, fits me like a glove. But it, but it also sounds like it takes a bit of a poke at, like, like a lot of movies do these days, you know, at, what do they call them, Gen X, Gen Z, Millennials, whatever they are. The, the, the ones these days, you know, there's a bit of a, a tender poking at, but at the same time, you know, kind of stuff gets around. Yeah, you know, I think what I like about this film, and it, it, this shares something with movies like Get Out and things like that, is that as opposed to maybe taking an aim at a certain group of people or even a certain individual, it tends to poke at the system. It's a recognition that we're all in this boat and it's the system that is, that is sometimes the problem, you know. It's the system yeah. that... Uh, puts us all in these in these roles in these situations and so i think that's what's fun about fresh is it sort of is deconstructing the system it's not sort of like here's the fish here's the barrel let's take some shots yeah like i don't like a film that targets any one age bracket or you know demographic because everybody's been at a certain situation at a certain time they can't help their age you know there's no sense just berating somebody but if it kind of makes fun of as you said the system or things as a whole, and kind of everybody gets in the way of what happens. I'm totally up for that. And, so. and keep in mind, I think what Cave's done here is made a movie that works completely as a thriller. You are in this, and you're in it for what's happening in the immediate moment. It, it, you're into the story, you're into the characters, you're into all the elements that make the film up. And what's neat is the things that she wants to say are emotions you feel as you're going through the movie. And then you kind of ask yourself at the end, why did I feel those emotions? Or what do those emotions mean? Or, or let's take this. It's such an outsized, weird scenario that when you have to put it because of the performances, the performances make you think about it in a real world like way. And when you try to rationalize what's happening here, you, you keep shrinking until you realize that, that there are some parallels. So I think that's the, the, the genius 
of the movie she's put together is it completely works as a story and you don't think about all of these facets until you you the movie's over and you begin to think about it a little bit and it it, it has a nice kind of afterglow because i think you realize all oh, that you know that movie i mentioned last week about movies that you kind of watch once and it's like as soon as the movie's over it sort of breezes off and this movie kind of sticks in your head a little bit maybe maybe uh you know uh, sticks in your in your gullet a little bit as well, but I highly recommend it. And I think they just keep in mind this is this is we're not talking a rom com here. This does eventually become a a dark and kind of strong movie. And they there may be some people who watch this and think that I'm suggesting something very frolicky and fun. And I, I do think it's fun in its own way, but it's also dark and twisted, and it's kind of gruesome. Awesome. I am definitely going to check this out. I just have to find time in my schedule, which is fairly busy these days, but I definitely will want to watch yeah, it. Yeah, and everybody's up for that. It's on Hulu right now. You can check it out there. It's called Fresh. Fresh. Awesome. All righty. So the last of my 2022s, unless I get to a, a different one, but is one that, I, again, a blind watch, a Saturday morning, I've made my daughter breakfast. I've said dad needs a little bit of dad time, so I throw one in knowing nothing about it, called Those Who Walk Away. 2022, an hour 34, the time frame is my wheelhouse, the poster looks okay, which we all know can sucker you in. It's right up on IMDb is. After Max and Avery meet on a social media app for a first date, or maybe it's like fresh, who knows, they end up at a haunted house only to realize the trauma they share may either save them or erupt into an unforgettable nightmare. Okay, that could be one of a thousand films. You can go a lot of places with that. The director is Robert Ripberger, which he hadn't done anything that I was aware of. Doesn't mean it's not good, just means he's just starting it. It stars Boo Boo Stewart. Anybody, which does not include me, who's watched the Twilight Saga, he plays a character called Seth. I don't know if that makes rings a bell for anybody, but he's in a couple of the Twilight films. Uh, he was also in X-Men Days of Future Past. I don't know how big a role he played in that, but he was in it. It stars also Scarlett Spurduto, who has a recurring role in The Daily Show and was in All My Children, and Nils Allen Stewart, who among his many roles has been in The Mask, Space Cowboys, and Planet of the Apes. So this is a film that's a tale of two films. It's included as a drama, a horror, and a thriller. The first half is something completely different than the second half. It opens with Boo Boo Stewart meeting a girl for a blind date. He's on the phone with a buddy of his. You can tell he's kind of an interesting character. He's a bit of an introvert, bit of a shy guy, but he knows if, you know, if he wants to get anywhere in life, he wants to have a partner to share things with. So he goes on this blind date. And basically the first 20 minutes of the film is just dialogue between the two of them. Getting to know each other, telling a little bit about their background, kind of flirting a little bit, kind of feeling each other out and seeing if this is going to go anywhere. And then they go to a bar. 
and she says she's going to buy him, I forget, was a fireball, some kind of liquor. He's not a big drinker, but he's like, okay, sure, for this date, I'll do it. And so they get a couple drinks in them, and things are starting to go well. The atmosphere is starting to ramp up. There's good conversation. I have to say, Spruduto looks quite well to look at. She looks really nice, but she's a good actress. So I kind of like where it's going. If you get the sensibilities of a Quentin Tarantino film or a Seinfeld episode where they're just chewing the fat back and forth and you're building up what the story is, that's kind of what's going on here. It's an atmospheric slow build, okay? But Sperduto is full of secrets and surprises. You know, she's not exactly who she portrays herself as. She says, hop in my car. I'm going to take you to a drive. I know of a haunted house that we can go to. These are always fun. We don't want, we don't need to hang around the city and do the movie thing, which there's a reference to in the movie. And let's go to this haunted house, kind of like, you know, urban discovery. And she's also got a loaded gun in her um, glove box, which there's a scene that relates to. So you're kind of going, where is this going? It's, I wouldn't say it's ultra pleasant. It's not uncomfortable, but the characters are just getting to know each other. And then they get to the haunted house. Who is this Sperduto? Her character's name is Avery. Who is Avery? And what is behind her? What is going on? And why is she taking him to this house? Does she want to make out with him? Does she want to scare him? Is she just an adventurous type of lady? they get to this haunted house and some things are revealed about what's in the house. There's an urban legend called rock creep. That is an entity that's attached to the house and he needs to feed. And you're going, Oh, that's very interesting. And we get to meet somebody in the house and we find out why Sperduto as Avery is so attached to this house. And the film takes a wild turn at about the 45 minute mark and it gets dark. It becomes a survival film. It becomes a, quite frankly, I wrote down a WTF moment when (laughs) my favorite kind, when Stuart becomes attached to a bed and is tied there. And I don't want to give a lot more because if you're going to watch the film, you don't want me to reveal kind of what happens afterwards. But, but this is funny. I write down, it becomes a hot mess in the second half. Is that a good kind of hot mess or a not good hot mess? No, not a good hot mess. It, It does crawl into the horror realm, but I liked it better as a drama. And how often do I say that? (laughs) <laughs> Not very often, although it seems like it was always headed for at least horror content, right? Like the haunted house yes. set up and things like that. It sounds it it it, it does. Uh, let's just say I wasn't a fan of how it ended, or or not not how it ended, how where it went. Let's just say the ending would make Roger Corman happy. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means, but I guess well, if does. you've seen a movie like The Terror. 
Okay, okay. I see where you're going with this. And I don't like it. (laughs) Flames abound. Uh, But at the end of the day, I was like... You're right. Once once Corman was done with a movie, he heard of burning bridges. He was burning sets. (laughs) We're done. We're never coming back to this again. That's it. To hell with it. So... I didn't I didn't like the last half of the film at all. So I give this a five out of ten. But I do want anybody who's listening to this to watch it and tell me if I missed anything. Because I can oh. see this getting I can see this getting a little bit of a uh, cult following. Yeah, you really had me as you were describing it. Like it would like up to the point you said and actually and including the the sort of WTF moment when things kind of go off the rails. Um, or or escalate, you know, can go either way sometimes. And yet, you know, oh, man, I feel like if it does uh, actually fall apart in the second half, it's so much more frustrating when a movie is on on track to sort of soar and then it just sort of falters on the runway. Like it, it's got the bones of, yeah. of, of, of something there. And it obviously was obviously on the lower budget end, but I don't think that hurt it. I think it was the writing that hurt it. Like, I don't know what the director or the writers were thinking. Let's build it up in a certain way and then go. What? I feel like people don't write for third acts anymore. You know, they, they kind of get enamored oh. with ideas and concepts, but one of the reasons a concept like what you just described is so cool is where we can imagine the final destination being, right? When you talk about there's the haunted house and we're going to go there and check it out and there's questions about characters' motives, you know, that's a perfect setup. But that setup is enticing because we just imagine what's going to be, you know, at the heart of it. And, you know, what's inside that house? What's going to happen to these characters? And it seems so so frequently these days, and I've encountered this even a couple times, some of the movies tonight, even though I enjoyed them, you know, you get these movies that don't seem to plan very well for their third acts, or they're not they're not conceived with their third act. They're conceived as a concept or a conceit. And then there's the idea that, well, it has to end sometimes, so something has to happen. <laughs> but it could be anything. Yeah. yeah, like like a bit of a feel of incident in a ghost land, but um, way yeah, worse. I'm getting that feeling, and it really sounds like, and I don't I don't want to spoil anything, I don't know the spoilers, but it sounds like that this even more so than being a case of the movie just having an unsatisfactory, excuse me, of the, instead of this being just a case of the movie having an unsatisfactory ending or even an abrupt ending, it sounds like it's one of those pull the rug out from under you endings that renders you thinking that the movie was pointless, that there was no real yeah, I, point I, to be there at all. I, I I actually like the very ending, yeah, but it's what led up to it. And you're like, oh, God, what am I watching? <laughs> well, I think so you give intrigued it- me enough to check it out, but. <laughs> I'm, I'm anybody. I'm I was going to say anybody out there, anybody out there who's a fan of the horror slash drama thriller genre, watch it and tell me: Am I off base? Did I miss something? Is this destined to be a cult type of film? Is Boo Boo Stewart that good looking to look at that he's worth watching? I don't know. I don't know, Bill. I, I, I think I trust your instincts on this one, but I, there's still a part of me that feels compelled to check it out because I just want to see what you're talking about at this point. <laughs> you but, go for it, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't watch it with, I wouldn't watch it with your son and daughter. No, it's not on the top of the list either. No, this will be one that I won't watch it with my wife either because she'll scowl at me if it's bad. So. <laughs> Well, go ahead. What do we got next, Mr. Nathan? Something better, I think. <laughs> I think. Um, awesome. So 
this is another film. This from the Sundance Film Festival, but not Sundance 2022. Actually, Sundance 2021. And Ooh. I think that I've probably mentioned this on our weekly reviews last year, but probably just in a very minimal way. And you can hear a my initial thoughts on the film actually over on Horror Movie Podcast last year when I was on with um, with uh, with Wolfman over there, and we talked about the movies of. Sundance 2021. And I reviewed the film there. It was not a horror film, but I still kind of gave my two cents on it because it was one of the movies I saw. And it might you you could consider it adjacent because it does belong in sort of the uh the genre science fiction fantasy. This is a movie called Strawberry Mansion. It's a movie called Strawberry Mansion. And it's directed by Albert uh, Bernie and Kentuckier. Excuse me. It's directed by Albert Bernie and Kentucker Audley. They've both made very strange films apart and together over the years. I saw uh, Bernie's first film, The Beast Pageant, years ago at the Maryland Film Festival. It's a very handmade, kind of weird movie with lots of strange images. That, and it moved anywhere from sort of the Gene Autry singing cowboy feel of film to uh, references to the creature from the Black Lagoon to scenes literally of a giant breast birthing a baby. So, you know, it was a little bit of everything. It had some eraser head to it and some Terry Gilliam to it. This movie is much more uh, coherent, I think, as a film, but not necessarily any more structured as a story. But let me give you sort of the setup here. It takes place in 2035, except that the world we're looking at in classic fashion of these, these sort of... Uh, Fantasists that imagine worlds cobbled together out of things from our subconscious and from our own history. It, it's not a future that's instantly recognizable. It looks like it's based on old, outdated technology, honestly. But the federal government employs dream auditors to make sure people are paying their taxes on the lives they're living in their heads when they're asleep. In their dream world, is they've, they've realized that, hey, the world inside your head isn't off limits from advertising or or taxing. So if certain objects show up in your dreams, there's a certain monetary value for that. And there's a tax for having this in your dream. So if you're having a dream involving a Viking ship, guess what? There's a tax on that, Bill. <laughs> the tax. Uh -oh. And if we can get into these dreams and we can analyze them, guess what? We can try to sell you fried chicken. There's, there's scenes of people <laughs> popping up with buckets of fried chicken in the midst of this dream. It's inserted. I was going to say, so Nathan, would you consider this fantasy? Is this this is a little bit of fan. This is fantasy more than science fiction. I say that because the technology, for example, the dream auditor, uh, Pribble, who's actually played by uh, Audley in the film, who he was also the co-director and the co-screenwriter on this one with Bernie. He shows up at this country home of this woman, this elderly woman named Bella. Now she's, uh, she's played by Penny Fuller. She's been living there kind of out in the countryside with her chickens and her turtle. And she has, uh, when he comes to audit her, she has not been audited in a very long time because right now there's this sort of air stick, almost like a USB that you record all your dreams on. And it's very easy. The auditor comes in, plugs it in. She doesn't have any of that. She's got old v piles and piles of old VHS tapes that have her dreams recorded on them. And so uh, Preble has to put this big, weird, clunky-looking, like 1995's version of a VR helmet on, right, and audit the dreams that way. And so all of this is very sort of 
lo-fi Terry Gilliam. It has a handmade, very charming feel to it. It's also very gentle and it's not hurried getting where it's going. It has a quirky atmosphere that you just really enjoy being in right from the get-go. And it has that satirical bent that a movie like Sorry to Bother You has, but it's not as dark or as focused and as as piercing as that film was. It does have a true gentle whimsy to it. And you're into it even before the more outlandish aspect of of watching Audler go into the dreams uh, to, as he begins to audit them, he goes into these circumstances and these situations, scenarios and worlds that exist within Fuller's dreams. And he encounters a younger version of Bella in there that he sort of over time falls in love with. And they begin to go on certain adventures inside the dream world. At one point he's on a ship, a sailing nautical sailing ship with a couple of humanoid rodents and they have to fend off sea demons. So you get, you get a little bit of, uh, of um, uh, Michelle Gondry from eternal sunshine, the spotless mind or the science of sleep. You get those sorts of feels. You get the Terry Gilliam of time bandits and Brazil. And yet there's a just, there's a kind of good natured, uh, more slow down feel to the film that it's not hurried and it's not trying to get anywhere too particular. So it allows you to have all these great visions and all these images and all these really cool, uh, silly contraptions that are still part of this interesting world and this interesting idea of the dream auditing. And then you do even get a little bit of a intrigue where some agents are looking for something and there's the smallest hint of a plot with characters and motivations, but you enjoy watching these two characters bounce around inside this world. I had such a great time with it. It's kind of like a big, warm, weird hug. I give this movie a nine because I saw when I saw it last year, I think I was around the eight and maybe 8.5 mark. It seemed like so much uncontained whimsy that I took it all in, but it almost felt like, you know, like when you eat a whole bunch of sweets and your mouth is almost numb at the end, that was my first feeling. But upon uh, repeated viewings of this movie, there's a little, the whimsy becomes the reason for the film. It doesn't feel like empty calories. You, you feel sort of swept up in all of it. And and, and I, I love watching it. There's a scene, and, and what's cool, and I think you'll appreciate about this, Bill, and I think a lot of our listeners may as well, we're not talking about big special effects. We're not talking about CGI. We're talking about a weird handcrafted, handmade feel. Uh, you know, there, like I mentioned, there's a Gilliam or Wes Anderson or, or Michelle Gondry feel to the way these images are created, even, even more low-key than that. And, for example, there's one scene where suddenly these two main characters are sort of uh, thrust into a sequence where they are now hurling comets headed towards the earth and their faces are sort of just plastered on these sort of uh, almost like styrofoam balls with flames around them, looking like something from a, an old George Melies movie, you know, it's they, they're talking to each other as they enter the atmosphere. So there's just, if that sounds like it would be a horrible time for you, maybe avoid strawberry mansions. But if you're up for some, some, truly uh, gentle, inspired, and and very charming silliness. And I, I say silliness, but there is a plot here. There is a story that comes through this, and these characters carry you all the way through that story. They just do so at their own pace. But here's the thing. There's not a second of this movie that isn't showing you something interesting or strange or uh, enticing. So there's always something there. The, so many movies... I when I watch a film like this, I remember so many movies are just people sitting in a room uh, talking to each other to get to the next step of the plot. And this movie isn't concerned about that. And instead, it's kind of throwing things at you. But 
lovingly, like a you know, like an underhand toss, <laughs> not lobbing them at your head to, to sort of stun you into submission. So I love the film. I give it a nine. Starway Mansion. You can get it on Amazon or a lot of the streaming services. You can you can uh, rent or buy. If you're someone, I will say this: if you're someone who is inclined towards these very visual very sort of offbeat pictures. You may want to just buy this one more wait or rent it and wait for the physical media because I think this is going to be, you know, a gem of your collection over time. So I, it's a nine, buy it if you're that kind of person. Uh, if you're just looking for something fun, and I will say this is, if I'm giving this movie rating uh, in terms of like content, I'd say this is closer to a PG-13. I think this is a film you, you know, uh, kids a little bit older, you could watch this. It has almost a... a a good children's film, like a never ending story. It has that kind of vibe to it. These characters are not children, but the worlds they inhabit have that sort of ambiance. That's awesome. I, I have not seen this, but I do want to, cause I like you, I like some of those trippy out there, esoteric, you know, take you out of your world kind of films. And that kind of seems to have the sensibility, but when you were shaping it up, I thought, Oh, is this kind of like minority report? Uh, do I get that vibe of Tom Cruise looking in people's brains kind of vibe? So, so you know, the thing about a Minority Report, which I think is also an excellent film, and I love that, and also a visual film, that that movie is still driven much by its plot, right, and its thriller elements. It is at heart still a thriller. Strawberry Mansions is too has its head too far into the clouds to ever be be too much of a thriller or be ever too much of some film full of intrigue. And and when you see the contraptions that they use, you know, Minority Report introduces this world of technology that at the time in 2002 seems kind of plausible. And in fact, we have moved in some ways, sadly, more closer to that world. And yet it's still very much plays by the rules of a dark, almost noir thriller, right? Uh, both films are excellent. This movie, though, is a lot more just about char- being charming in the moment and 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 tapping into the sort of atmosphere and the fun. Uh, I guess the fun sort of excursions that these characters take, and we we feel their uh, their chemistry with one another by all of these fun little scenarios that they go through. So the world is not as serious as World Minority Report. You're not going to sit there and think about this technology because the technology is absurd. It looks old and outdated from the moment you see it. So, but yes, I, I, I see where you're going with this, where Minority Report uses this technology to kind of open up. There are, there are playful sequences in Minority Report, I think, of where the precogs can see things. And there's a chase scene in that film where, uh, you know, Tom Cruise has to get somewhere and he has to evade these characters. And because one of the precogs can see everything's happening, she's sort of, you know, stage managing him through this because she can tell him where he needs to run and that a mop is going to fall here or something's going to happen there. The playfulness of that scene. Now take that and just make it more adult and more overwhelming. And you're going to get closer to what's in a film like strawberry mansions, you know, maybe a movie like the adjustment bureau uh, would, would move closer. And then honestly, again, Eternal, if you want the closest that I can get you, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, The Science of Sleep. Movies where the dreams and the absurdity sort of take over at a point. And they're, they're what have momentum here, not the story itself. I mean, the other one that I, I thought of right away is the 2021 Come True. Yeah, this but that one has a much darker. Yeah, this is far away from horror. This is gentle, whimsical. Uh, visual fantasy. 
that and it, it's got a little bit more, a little bit more of the Monty Python. Yeah, you know what? I think I think throwing the Monty Python into the mix is, is it gets you a little bit closer and more striking because it's particularly because of the Gilliam influence. I think that Terry Gilliam, if he hasn't seen this movie, I think he will really appreciate it when he does see it, and it's sure to be. I believe. I, I feel confident this one's going to be sitting around my top 10 list uh, at the end of the year. And it would have been, if I if it had been released last year, it would have been very high towards the top then. But I, I think it's definitely headed for a spot in 2022s. Okay, so it sounds like a, a kind of a, a light fantasy with a little bit of meaning of life thrown in there. Yeah, yeah. I say I say it's light, but I think there are definitely people who are going to draw some substance from it because they are... Their souls are nourished by this kind of crazy movie with its crazy energy and its crazy images. Sounds like a movie I watch after I've had a couple of gummies. Go for it, man. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to belabor and keep going do, doing a whole ton more films. But one that I did get to that I wanted to bring up that is right in my wheelhouse. A director that I like to revisit from time to time, Mr. Olaf Ittenbach. Olaf Ittenbach, for those that aren't aware, is a German director that does what some might call extreme German horror, but he doesn't do extreme necessarily to gross you out. He, he puts a little bit of thought and effort into the plot lines. He gets some decent actors from time to time. He can He's one of those directors who can do a lot with a little. And he directed films such as Primutos, The Fallen Angel, which oh no, yes 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 <laughs> I, I like that film but it's it is on the gory side uh the burning it's moon. on the gory side is an understatement <laughs> <laughs> the burning moon uh which has a very interesting depiction of hell but he also does uh, a film called savage love which i quite liked as well later in his career so chain reaction is from 2006 this is not keanu reeves chain reaction uh, when you first this, mentioned it, I thought, is that what we're getting? I, I saw that movie years ago. <laughs> no, no. This isn't Morgan Freeman. This is, uh, I'll give you the description. A group of convicts and a doctor seek refuge from the authorities in a lodge deep in the wood. But the weird inhabitants are not friendly. The cast has some interesting character actors. Uh, led by Christopher Creasa. Christopher Creasa, if you look up his uh, CV, has done a lot. In ter uh, usually smaller bit parts, but he gets credit. For example, he was a small part in Castaway. Uh, 1986 is one of my favorite films, Summer School as Beach Cop. <laughs> and he was in, in, in some episodes of Grey's Anatomy. He's been in a lot. He's been a script supervisor. He's been behind the scenes. He's done a lot. You've got Martina Ittenbach, which I'm pretty sure is his daughter, but I don't know for sure. She was in one of Mr. Becker's favorite films, Seed. Uh, we have <laughs> Simon Newby. Simon Newby, who was in V for Vendetta. Uh, we got James Butler, who was in Snowden and Resident Evil. We got Dave Van Heusen, who was in the 1979 version of Nosferatu. And one that people in the genre will know, and even outside of the genre, Jürgen Prochnow. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness, Das Boot, 1984's Dune, 
I think he's, he's, I mean, he's still acting to this day. He's a really great character actor. So what happens in this film? I'll give you the three minute synopsis. Criminals are being transported in a van to get from the prison to where their destination is. It crashes. It runs into an animal. The, the van flips and the inmates get out. Now, they get out, they're chained, they get out of their chain, they kill the guards, they need to get somewhere. Some of them get injured in a, in a, a gunfight. They happen to pull off the first car that goes by. Guess what? He's a doctor. All the Hooray. odds, all the, yeah, he happens to be a doctor, and that's Christopher Kreese. And so, or Kreese. So they bring him along. They basically kidnap him to go along with them because one of them's been injured pretty badly. Now they're walking through the woods. They're near Seattle, Washington. They want to walk up to the Canadian border to cross over because there'll be no border. What? There's no border guards at all. They're just going to walk across. Maybe. I don't know. So they're walking through the woods. They need some food. They need a break. Uh, They got injuries and they find this rural house out there. They see the smoke coming out of the smokestack They stop in there. Let's just say the inhabitants are a cult. You call them a family. You call them a cult. You call them what they will. This is low budget. There's no doubt. It's low budget. But it's actually better acting and effects than you might expect. And the musical score isn't all that bad. Ittenbach is a master of getting as much as he can out of the budget he's given. I don't want to give too much away, but it's given away pretty much in the poster. The family they find is a cannibalistic vampire clan. <laughs> and you, you, you can just they imagine drink you first and then eat you, or does it matter? <laughs> it, it kind of all just kind of is one big blood fest and you can imagine what happens, but let's just say at least one of the characters survives. The character that survives gets taken into the police and he's arrested. And so we're not again, even near the film at this point. We're about halfway okay. through. Yeah. It's just, this is kind of like Groundhog Day. It's its, own, is it, it's, it's its own movie and its own sequel at the same time, right? <laughs> exactly. It's like two shorts, you know, patched together. And then he gets arrested and he's being transported. And guess what? it flips over again in the same spot with a group of convicts and they go to that same damn house and you can imagine what the outcome is. <laughs> so he literally just makes the same movie twice in the same movie. Essentially in the same movie with slightly different characters, but they're just convicts. Right. But I will say this, there's a playfulness to it. There's lots of good gore. The practical effects are good. If you like a survival film of sorts, you'll like this. Uh, Like, what are the odds of a bus carrying convicts twice in the same general area and flipping over within a kilometer of the same? So so hold on, Bill, because because I'm used to particularly these days so many of these films, and you know we've talked about some of them tonight, where it's built into the plot that okay. The movie's going to change course now, and we're going to see this done. And there's a reason why this happens twice. You're telling me that we're not talking about time loops. We're just saying two separate groups of convicts crash two, for yeah. no connected reason. 
Well, there is a, a, a tenuous connection, and I had to flip back and watch. But I didn't, honestly, with an Ittenbach film, I'm not digging deep. I just watched it's it at a basically service. Basically, like, here's take one and here's take two. We're going to try exactly. this twice and see which there is there, there is a connection because I can't remember what the animal is. Is it a deer or something? They hit um, – a bird falls from a tree branch and then an animal goes across but, and it gets uh, in the way. My point, though, is that there's no yeah. – there, this, the the second group of convicts is not the same as the first. It just happens twice, and we watch it all happen again. Exactly. Okay. Perfect. Yep. Yep. And you can see how it plays out. My favorite is yep. when, me, when movies start recycling themselves by the halfway point. By far, my like favorite. The, <laughs> like this isn't um, a much better film, which I think I think you like Time Crimes. This isn't time crime. See, you had me, and I was thinking within. I'm like, Mark is trying. That's kind of ambitious for him, but no, this sounds like the usual trash. No, this is, it's got some comedy. Uh, there's one convict that gets shot in the scrotum and needs to be treated by a doctor. Hilarious. <laughs> it, you know, it's got the sensibility of from dusk till dawn, bordello of blood, like that kind of. There's I, Bill, I think it's fair to say there is also maybe a bit of a, 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 a chasm between these two films in terms of quality. <laughs> no, in terms of quality, yeah, but but you know, like that kind of sense of air of more more of bordello are... of blood, which I, which I honestly I have a kind of uh, affection for, but more bordello of blood than than Dustal Dawn. I take it, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you know what? I gave it a seven out of ten. I, I enjoy this kind of film. And again, put your brain at the door. Uh, for me, I can grab popcorn and uh, licorice and enjoy this film. I don't know if everybody can, but I can. So if you like blood, if you like Ittenbach, if you like vampires, if you like cannibalistic, if you like ones where you don't have to think too much, and you get to see Jurgen Prock now, a really good actor in this kind of film, it gets a 3.6 on IMDb. I think that's a bunch of hogwash. I at least give it a 5, but I give it a 7. I Guys, if you're a, a, a gore hound, if you like getting Bach, if you like German films, if you like that kind of deal, I say it's on YouTube. So you can find it for nothing. It seems like thinking about this film would actually be detrimental to the experience. Yes. Don't don't go in with zero expectations and just enjoy. Now, what are you gonna take from that, Naven? I don't know. I may take I may take that as a cue to skip this, but I will say I have I'm currently subscribing to the Arrow video like uh, channel. They have a streaming channel, and they've got some Mittenbach films on there. I suspect this one may be there, and I may have to turn it on just just to take it a little bit. What you're describing here, I mean, you give it a seven out of ten. I might give it a I might give it a whirl. Um, I may also turn it off, and I will not lose any sleep over that. Well, let's just say if you've seen the first 47 minutes, Well, I was going to say, I think I can, I can watch the, the first <laughs> half and just say, well, you know what? There's the movie. I just, you know, I'll yeah, imagine just, it twice. Just hang around long enough till Procknow plays a uh, police inspector. The fact so that he shows up in this film, and I'm assuming, when was this movie made? 2006. Wow, it's a lot newer than I thought it was. <laughs> I, and, 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 for all the world, I felt you, you were describing like a 1992 film. <laughs> well, and the thing is, I think it was just before the precipice of streaming. So it's 2006. So it went direct to video. Yeah, right. Like just as just as video stores and everything were sort of like mainlining out, they were, you know, yeah. they were sort of. And there, there wasn't quite. Just as they were Netflix fading out. Yet. Yeah. 
It was kind of in that intermediary well, period. Well, there was Netflix, but remember, there was probably a point when you had to order the disc. I, you know, oh, yeah. I forget all about that, but I was, yeah, yeah, we were watching. You had, to get it in the, you had to get it in the mail or whatever. Yeah, it was. we were watching an episode of The Office or something the other day, and the person was talking about ordering their Netflix queue so this would arrive. And, that, and I'm like, oh, my, I forgot all about all that. <laughs> I have a friend who still does that. He still just gets the discs delivered to his oh, home. Oh, really? I didn't even know oh, you could okay. still do it, <laughs> honestly. No idea. So what do you what do you bring into the table? Wow! Well, after that, um, yeah, it's going to be a nice little uh, family drama or something. So the next film I want to talk about is a movie that was actually discussed on our show a while ago by uh, Jason Widgington when he came onto our show and talked about the Fantasia Film Festival last year, and he reviewed a lot of different movies and a lot of films that we've talked about since. Um, that, that have now come out. And there's two of them tonight that he had reviewed on the show. The first of these, I remember when he mentioned it and I was instantly taken with it. And it's called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. And it's a 2020 film. It was released in 2021 to film festivals, but it really was just released this year, 2022, on streaming and on physical media. This is a film that I saw it on streaming, but I actually went ahead and just sort of sight unseen, bought a physical copy of it because you know what? The way that Jason had described it sold sold me on it. So here is, this is the uh, synopsis according to Letterboxd. I filled it in a little bit. The cafe owner discovers that the TV in his cafe suddenly shows images from the future, but only from two minutes into the future. And this is a Japanese film. It's directed by... Yuta Yamaguchi, and the concept here is that this is sort of a one-take film, right? Now, I don't know if this is really one physical take. It, there, there's minimal special effects. We're talking an excessively low-budget film here, but it looks like one take. It is developed as if it is one take, so everything you're seeing has the feel that the camera is never breaking, right? So we follow these characters. And one of the things that's very interesting about this is we are talking, again, very low budget, uh, no big fancy cameras. The film quality on the movie, we're not talking about something that is visually dazzling. Uh, it looks pretty pedestrian from that perspective. But that also sort of brings you instantly into the film because you're watching, it's almost as so you're watching the, there's no, there's no wall or impediment between the camera and the characters. And you're instantly right in to this sort of a lackadaisical guy working in the cafe and he lives above the cafe and the, the, the camera that's recording things in the cafe, he realizes that there that suddenly there is a time discrepancy and the stuff that he's seeing there is two minutes into the future. Um, when he's upstairs and he's sitting there practicing guitar, suddenly the TV is talking to him and it's him giving himself a message from just two minutes earlier. And Hey, you need to go back downstairs because this is about to happen. But because there's only a two minute discrepancy, he's only getting small snippets of information and he will go down and react to this information. And then he's going to, to learn new information uh, from, from another version of himself. That's two minutes further into that future. And this loop seems pretty simplistic at first until other characters like uh, the, the young woman that works a shop few doors down 
get involved, that some of his friends and neighbors get involved, and then slowly the plot just escalates from there. So it's very simply, like a very sort of um, almost a goofy comedy. And then you, and, and my children were first like, I don't know if we're going to enjoy this uh, because, you know, they're trying to read the subtitles and keep up with the film. And then at some point it just sort of clicks that the escalation is that every time you've got this two minute delay and a lapse and there's, there's a new action taken that the next person talking to you from two minutes in the future may be talking to you, but that you they're speaking about is someone who's now four minutes into the future and then eight minutes into the future. And at some point, my seven-year-old, she stopped and described the movie. And she said, Dad, it's like you left a bunch of tabs open on the computer. And they're all <laughs> they're all playing at different... And that's essentially what you have. There is one scene where you see several TV cameras set up, and they just go all the way back, and there's a different version uh, from two minutes forward speaking. And so it gets almost to feel... you. You're initially uh, tempted to think of a movie like primer or something but whereas that movie was very cold and reserved this is a fun kind of quirky uh character comedy and you are with these characters and you you feel like very much this would be if you found yourself in the circumstance that these people they you might handle things the way they do and you know a movie i might liken it to although the plot is not the same this has some of that very uh pleasing and kind of um big hearted, but also very clever, very kind of smart about what it's doing that a movie like one cut of the dead had, you know, it's constantly surprising you by being something different than you expect it to be. And it starts with this very simple premise and it just sort of keeps piling things on top. And after a while you're as invested in wondering how far can they stack this Jenga tower before everything slips off and falls on the ground? Uh, or are they going to be able to cross the finish line with it? And at a certain point, once you see them pull off some of the stuff, you almost don't care anymore. You're just, you're, you're so sort of like I was anyway, I was so like tickled, I guess, really to be on the journey to watch them pull this off each step of the way and kind of realize I was getting sucked into the story a little by little by little. The, some of the same people that worked on this film did a movie back in the day called summer, uh, summer time machine blues about kids in a, who lose their TV remote and build a time machine to go back and get it. And it causes so many problems. At one point they're back in feudal Japan, you know, and they, and they cause all kinds of issues all over this TV remote. So it's one of those one darn thing after another movies uh, where it's building a, uh, it builds a sort of kind of wacky caper where you're trying to figure out why this happened. But of course, because it's time as you, as you strive to figure out why it's happening, you, you're sort of the cause of why it happened in the first place. And if you can follow any of what I just said, you know, it, it becomes a chicken before the egg issue after a while. Can you apply perfect logic to the science fiction at the heart of the film? I'm not sure, but it plays a lot with some interesting uh, sci-fi theories. And then, of course, it sort of backs up and reminds you, hey, we're just having fun here. Don't take it all too seriously. But I think the creativity in this movie is very high. Characters are very likable. The cast has a lot of fun uh, just playing off of each other and playing with this concept. And because, because the movie looks sort of uh, very handmade, again, it looks very low budget, and it looks very independent, 
it that draws you in more. You're sort of constantly surprised to see them take these things to the next level. So there's always something happening. There's always something to keep you invested. It's a nice 71 minutes long. It kind of does what it needs to do. And then it's, uh, it's over and you feel pretty satisfied. I did when the movie was over. I loved it. I thought it was uh, some of the most fun I had just watching a movie. And uh, it was just a joy, like a, a, a true joy to, to watch. And I think that it's so good that, you know, by the end, my kids were ready to watch it again. And they, they spent the whole movie reading it. <laughs> and they, they were able to keep up with it. And uh, I highly recommend it. Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, it's, uh, again, we're talking about a movie that's that's about a PG-13 level at best. You know, uh, it's going to be appropriate as a family viewing. And you're going to have a really good time with it. Highly recommend it. It's smart. It's funny. And it has a good heart. I give this one a nine as well, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. Sounds awesome. I definitely want to see it. I remember when Jason talked about it and I looked for it and I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. So I kind of put it in the back burner. So it's good to know. Where did you find it streaming? It was streaming on, again, it was one that you had to rent, but I remember it being, I don't know what it is now, but it was only a couple dollars. I bought the the Blu-ray only because I thought, you know what, this is one that I want to add to my collection. My, again, my kids looked at the cover, sort of balked down and said, I don't know, dad. And, they it's one of their favorites we've only had for about a month and they they love kind of coming up and pulling it off the shelf so uh but beyond the infinite two minutes i'm pulling it up on amazon right now to see what it's uh sort of running for but you can you can rent it for a couple of dollars uh right now you you can rent it for 3.99 you can buy it for 7.99 uh the blu-ray is about 20 bucks thereabout, and i think that uh you can get the dvd for 15 it's a fun, fun movie. It's definitely worth, I would say, uh, you know, mo- lots of times the rentals are like $6.99. You can buy this movie at $7.99. It may be a little bit more for high def. You get 10 bucks to buy it in HD. Do you need HD with this movie? You, you, you probably really don't. I mean, honestly speaking, again, the film quality, you're talking about low budget. You're not, uh, I enjoyed seeing it in the high def, but it's not, it's not essential to hear. You're going to get everything you need to get from this film. Uh, just by, just by watching the characters and watching the way the, the kind of uh, ingenuity that goes into the script and the way the performers pulled the script off. So um, very fun, very cool movie. I'm looking forward to anything that, um, that Yamaguchi does in the future, but um, yeah, can't, can't really recommend this one enough. Yeah, I definitely want to see this. It's not often that you get a time travel movie with a bit of whimsy to it. Like usually they're either hardcore science or there's a horror element to it or they get overly complicated like Primer does. This one, I mean, the only other one I could think of kind of in that vein is Back to the Future, which yeah. I know is a completely different kind of film, but it might have a little bit of that sensibility to it. This one's very smart. Well, the, well, the thing is, it's, it's the lo-fi nature of it where you're just dealing with something that occurs within a small amount of time because you're only going two minutes into the future, right? So yeah. uh, um, there, a movie that's, that attempted to do something similar but kind of went off in more of the Bill and Ted direction was a movie called Frequently Asked Questions About Time Travel. I don't know if you remember that film, uh, which I think I was a British film now. from a few years back. And it started with the characters in a pub, and then one of one of them sees their doppelganger and walks into the bathroom. And when they come back out, things have totally changed. But this movie doesn't 
deal with all of that. It's it's ingenious for how how much it does with so little, and at the very end, you just feel like, hey, I just went on, uh, I went on or on a trip, and I'm, re- I'm I would happily take that trip again. And again, I think it's got. We've talked a lot about how long should a movie be. At seventy minutes, this movie packs everything in, and you would you look at it and you think it doesn't need to be any longer, but you're ready to to you know when you want more. It's not so much that oh there was something lacking. I I'm just ready to go on this. I, I want I'd like to take that ride again, please. <laughs> yeah, it has the sensibilities. It sounds of like a a 1950s or early 60s sci-fi 75 minute film. Yeah, it's 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 more playful than that, but you're right in the sense that as I was watching and I thought, you know, this has some of the the playfulness and the and and the the love of 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 ideas that old classic sci-fi stories um on the written page, you know, pulpy uh, stories and Einlein stories and things of that nature it has and, and Bradbury stories even it has that sort of enthusiasm for the ideas and for science fiction that that those stories had and that's what propels it forward that's what gets you invested is its love of its ideas beauty I'm absolutely gonna watch this probably within the next couple of weeks so I'll, I'll give you guys an update as to what I thought of it but the way that Nathan describes it, I'm definitely... Yeah, you want a fun, check this crazy evening at home with the family, beyond the infinite two minutes of Strawberry Mansion, and then you can thank me or scream at me later, but I don't think you will be. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to watch this with Ella, but at age six, I don't want to have to make her read something. <laughs> I was surprised, <laughs> and it's funny, my wife and I were so tired the first time we put this movie in, it had nothing to do with the movie's quality. We literally, it was after a long Saturday of just doing things, and we put this movie and we started watching this kids. And we felt, my wife and I fell asleep, and I thought for sure my kids would have wandered off. And they were like, they're like, Dad, you have to watch this again right now because we have to we have to talk to you about it. <laughs> we have to talk about it, and we don't want to ruin it, but you need to watch it again. So I'm like, okay, well, let's do it. <laughs> Beauty. Well, uh, probably the last one I'll do tonight is one that, I was sent a message or there was a, yeah, I was sent a message by Dave Becker, Dr. Shock from our podcast as well, illustrated fan. And he said to me, Bill, do you know that it's been 28 years since we lost John Candy? And this was the 4th of March. I was like, really? It's been 28 years. I remember like yesterday when he passed and I'm like, oh my God, boy, am I getting old. It was not long after Cool Runnings came out, right? No, he. I mean, the last one was his last film was Canadian Bacon, but uh, the last one they had going in the theaters was Agon, uh, Wagons East. Yeah, yeah, that came and out that, after that, after his death. Yeah, and that yeah. was that was not good. Uh, uh, who was the actor? Richard. Um, I forget the the guy that was in it with him. But anyway, yeah, I can't think of his name either. I know exactly the guy. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, so I started thinking back and so I thought, okay, am I going to review summer rental, which I love, or am I going to do the great outdoors or, you know, go back to splash or national Lampoon's vacation, whatever, whatever. But then I remembered my buddy, Jason said to me, he's always seen it on YouTube, but he, he's never watched it either. There's a 1976 drama mystery horror called the clown murders, which I've never seen. And this gave me every excuse to watch. Now, this is 1976, so to say that John Candy, quote-unquote, starred in this 
would be a stretch. He was a secondary character, but I always love seeing movies where guys kind of get their start. And so I popped this one on. It's on YouTube. It's a VHS transfer, which I don't think it has a DVD or a Blu-ray release. So if anybody's listening, Justin Beam, if you're listening, or if there's anybody that's kind of in that business of transferring long lost films and putting a DVD to them, this would be one to get. It's directed by Martin Burke. Now, Martin Burke uh, did a lot of uh, journalistic slash documentary type films. He did one called Under Fire Journalists in Combat, which, which actually sounds really interesting. I want to watch that. But Nathan, you'll appreciate this. He was one of the top writers of the film Top Secret. Nice. Years later, which I haven't seen that in ages. I just remember the cow wearing boots. That's on the cover. <laughs> um, it stars Stephen Young. And Stephen Young was in films such as Soylent Green, Patton, and Who's Harry Crumb, which is another candy connection. Uh, Susan Keller, who was on Days of Our Lives and a few episodes of Dallas. Lawrence Dane, who was in Scanners and Bride of Chucky. John Candy, who plays a secondary character. And for all Canadians out there, Al Waxman is in this. Uh, Americans would know him for, as being the, uh, the chief in Cagney and Lacey. Uh, he was also in that film, The Hurricane, about Hurricane Carter. And for all Canadians, he was the king of Kensington. He plays a police, <laughs> he plays a police chief in this one. It was shot in Toronto. And according to IMDb, this film was a personal fave of Quentin Tarantino. Okay, so there's an odd, disturbing scene where a farmhand cuts the head off a chicken in the opening few minutes. <laughs> he's, he's doing his thing, you know, we're, we're in a farmhouse and the chicken, not often do you see a chicken with the, literally running with his head cut off. I mean, I'm sure he really didn't kill the chicken, but they, they portrayed it pretty well. The plot in this one builds slowly, but it does come together. So what is the plot? Four men kidnap an old girlfriend on Halloween night as a joke to ruin a real estate deal, only to have a very real clown mask killer stalk them seeking revenge. Hmm. Okay. So a rich businessman is making a property deal on certain land that Stephen Young used to live. The businessman Lawrence Dane is married to Susan Keller, who Young used to go out with. And he's trying to get her back. He doesn't know why he married this much older gentleman. But it's pretty obvious because he's a successful businessman. He's got a little bit of money. On Halloween night, Stephen and his friends attend a, a Halloween party dressed as clowns. And they kind of hatch this plan. They got a few drinks in them that they're going to knock out Dane and kidnap Keller, his girlfriend. They knock her out with chloroform. John Candy is one of the side friends. He doesn't take part in the kidnapping, but they, the rest of the guys bring her back to this house where uh, Stephen Young had lived and is going to be sold off, and Candy comes back afterwards. Now, there's a long wait in between action scenes. There's some dissension among the friends. Young is hoping this is just basically a chance to get her back convince her to go out with him and leave the husband. So 
it's kind of an odd uh, wraparound way of just getting her back. Now, chloroform may not work for it, but she's not overly afraid of him because she knows who the guy is. But there's a lot of dissension among the friends. What should they do with these people that are tied up? Uh, what's going to happen in the end? And all of a sudden, someone in a clown mask seems to be watching all of them from above on the farm. Okay, there's dark lighting. There's a lot of dark lighting. A lot of this takes place at night, but it kind of works for the movie's favor. It helps with the mood of the film. John Candy kind of plays a sympathetic character that he's trying to get everything to work out in, in the end, but he's not the leader of this situation, and he has to kind of work within the parameters that he's giving. The last 20 minutes gets really dark, okay? You see illusions of this clown that's looking at them. There are shots fired, but you don't always see where they're coming from. John Candy has a pretty prominent role in the last 20 minutes. And there's gunshots involved. There's a decent uh, suspense that's built up. But there is a lack of action or fear to the film. So it's a decent film, but I wouldn't say it's a great film. It's barely a good film, but for people that like John Candy or early, early to mid-70s suspense, small horror, or sorry, small space horror with a kidnapping connection, it's worth a one-time watch. And I think this could be cleaned up to look a lot better. I gave this a 6 out of 10. So is that a is that a recommend? It sounds like it sounds like would, it has I, moments of entertainment. Doesn't sound yeah, like Candy's a big part of it though, sadly. No, he, but he does actually. This is the one of the roles I've seen him in where he's not comedic. He's not playing off his size as the funny fat guy. He's not being the goofball. He's not being the funny dad. He's actually his intentions are good, and a few things happen along the way. John Candy is known, I don't know if they say he's a virgin, but he hasn't been with a lot of women. And that kind of plays out in it. And there's a pretty tense scene with him towards the end. But Stephen Young is the driving force in this film. And some people get their comeuppance. And it's kind of like, uh, what's that movie? A Simple Plan, where where wow. people have the money and things kind of... That's a good film. Blow up in their, yeah. Blow up, yeah, they blow up in their face because they all can't agree with what to do with it. This has elements of that where they kind of get a plan and stuff happens. The green eyed devil. <laughs> yeah, they, they can't agree what to do with it once it kind of comes to fruition. You know, it sounds you you sold me on. I want I wanted to see it. I was gonna try to see it. I'm a big fan of candy, and I was sad he passed way too young at 43, which is about the same age I, I'm at now. And he um I remember when I was in the sixth grade, they, they we were supposed to everybody was supposed to write a letter to somebody. And, and send it off. And so it was you're practicing your writing skills. And I remember yeah. writing to Candy and him actually writing back and sending a, like a, an autographed poster and everything. And I, somewhere, somewhere out there, it still exists. I'd probably my parents' house. I was going to say your parents' attic or yeah, something. Somewhere. Yeah, something. But it seemed, it seemed like a really great guy. Loved a lot of his movies. Um, I'm, I'm up for, for, for checking this one out. And I think um, Summer Rental, I always really enjoyed that one. I even had a, I had a soft spot for Delirious, <laughs> which is, is fun in its own way. Delirious, you know, uh, yeah. who's who's Harry Crumb? Um, 
Um, only the lonely is is underrated too. Lonely, I think so. With yeah. um, with O'Hara. Yes, Maureen it, O'Hara in it, and and Anthony Quinn is the neighbor. And and, and Cool Runnings. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's, it, unfortunately, Canadian Bacon and Wagons East weren't really much they to write great. home about. But no. um, but I mean, even even being the security guard at Wally's World in National Lampoon's Vacation. I love all his little cameos. Either the cameos yeah. in Home Alone, you know, he's um, the guy. Be, being the being the police officer in the Blues Brothers. Yes. Orange Whip? Orange Whip? <laughs> Orange Whip? Like my kids know him as Barf the Mog in Spaceballs. <laughs> Spaceballs, yes, that's yeah. right, yeah. So, I mean, we could do a whole episode. I've talked to um, Dave Becker before about getting back on his and doing a top 10 list of SCTV alumni, so that may come to fruition. But we could get a group of people together. I'm sure we could get the uh, real talk guys or any of those guys on and do a John Candy retrospective, and it would be yeah, a lot of fun. yeah. Maybe we can skip over nothing but trouble, <laughs> <laughs> or not. You know, that movie has its fans. I'm sure. I I think I saw Delirious in the theater. Yeah, I th- there's a couple of his, of his films around that time frame that I believe I did too. That's the one about the soap opera. Yes, he's in, he goes inside yes. the soap opera, which is that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. concept hadn't been done a lot at the time that that film w- was w- out. W- with the guy from Sledgehammer. Yes, yes, yes. Oh man, I used to watch Sledgehammer all the time around the time that movie came out. And then um, Dylan Baker's in it too. He's the brother that keeps having like the like the inoperable tumors or whatever. It's and who's the female? Mario Hemingway. Hemingway. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah, I think that one's a little underrated. It's it's goofy as heck, but it's fun. I think that I, one. I think I, I think our friend Joel they did it in uh, he they reviewed it on Retro Movie Geek not long ago. Oh, very cool, cool. Um, yeah, I I I'll put a link to that in the show notes and it, it's that's a fun one. I that and Un- only the lonely I remember came out around the same time, and I don't think there were many movies he did after that other than you mentioned Cool Runnings, which was fun. It was a hit at the time it, it came out, and we can't forget. What I think is his best acting in a small role is JFK. Oh yeah, I to- totally forgot about that. Yeah, when he played the uh, guy from New Orleans, who being a big man in the Heat, he really played that up really well, really, really well. Yeah, I think so- the thing that we didn't get to see was him kind of take that, you know, kind of do what sort of John G- Goodman got to do later in life, which sort of develop out of the comedy a sort of character actor you know which i I would have i think he was capable of it but he never quite got there you know no i i think his best well-rounded role was only the lonely planes trains and automobiles pretty good too oh yeah yeah. it's kind of like the one that you almost don't mention it you almost don't remember it because it's so well known in a sense you know yeah Um, so anybody listening let us know email the show uh, send a message to us would you like a John Candy retrospective episode? Because I would totally be up for it. I know that Nathan would be. We get Dave Becker. It, it would be an absolute blast to do that. Yeah, yeah. We talk about the volunteers too. <laughs> the oh, volunteers. Yeah. Palm Tuttle from Tacoma. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Kind of like he. Oh, and, and I was going to say, and stripes. Stripes. Yeah, he did some voice work in heavy metal. <laughs> And and he had his own cartoon show for a while. Camp Candy, you're right. Camp you're Candy, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, we should do a John Candy. Now episode. now you can do that with Dave on Illustrated Fan. Yeah yeah, I don't know if we'll go back and I remember that though happening. I don't know if his voice. I remember there's an Uncle Buck TV show that did not start John Candy was kind of awful. Um, oh yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah it yeah, wasn't yeah, great, yeah. but him punching that clown. It's got to be one of the best scenes. Yeah, John can't, can't. Uncle Buck is one of those movies. I remember loving it. And it kind of falls into that 
weird like it's it's like it's sort of like the issue with Clark Griswold where you realize later and you're like when you get older that he's kind of a sociopath. <laughs> you like that Uncle Buck is maybe not really a good guy, even though everyone seems to love him. <laughs> somebody did somebody did a uh, trailer of Uncle Buck as a horror film. Well, you know, the thing about that though is Uncle Buck does that in the film. Like there's a there's a I don't want to, you know, give anything away for people to see it, but there's this scene where he is there's this kind of scumbag kid that is kind of um, sidling up on the on the bug. young girl. Is that that, bug? Yeah, bug. He's bug, like, Nat, I know how to circumcise circumcise a gnat from fifty yards. He's like, Bug, gnat. <laughs> do I see a little resemblance? Yeah. But there's the scene when he's drilling the door down, and you see like candy and silhouette. This horror sort of horror movie sequence so i mean he kind of gets it in there his car like if people pull him over on the side of the road like excuse me sir your car is on fire <laughs> but the, the teenage daughter gives him heck and he goes i will walk right into your high school with this car running in my robe to the principal's office if you give me any more grief <laughs> i handed you know, the fun like yeah it, and the thing was he had such a good chemistry with with his co-stars like that you'd always want to see them in it amy, amy madigan is in that film with him you know as plays his sort of long i'll never forget girlfriend. I'll, I'll never forget the scene in summer rental where everybody's in the house and he just takes his leg is in a cast and he just takes his his cat his um uh, the thing he has under his arm, and he just whacks it across the kitchen table. Just, Everybody, out of my house now! Yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Him, his in that movie, it's his interactions with Rip Torn. <laughs> I think it, is they're in there, uh, you know, getting drunk in the in the houseboat or whatever. <laughs> and, and as he's walking across the beach, and everybody's like been there. Cooler, he's a dad. And he's like pouring it on he's people. Got, I got the cooler and the water is dripping out the side to everybody. So ladies in bikinis, kids. Yeah. It's like his old hot dog water is like pouring over these people as they walk across. Yeah. Oh man. We're already having that episode. We got to wait. We got to save this, but yeah, you got to save it. Yeah. That's um, so, one so let us know, everybody. throw it onto our group page, which by the way, we're up to 475 members or somewhere thereabouts. Yeah. It's going well. So, it's going real well. So, so keep telling your friends, Come on, join in. If you're a content creator in front of the camera, behind the camera, acting, what have you, have everybody come around and uh, spread the good word. So do you have any other movies left? Uh, I, I think I'm going to save some for next time because uh, we are like, so we're going to do this regularly. I do want to talk very quickly about a couple of quick uh, uh, TV shows. Um, I, I was going to talk about Peacemaker and HBO Max. It's wrapped up, but I'm going to, Gonna save that for next time so you can hear that review okay. next time because i will have some superhero goodness coming up for you here in a few minutes um but before that i want to talk about a show that's on epics right now and it's called from it's 2022 and we're going to kind of go back to the horror well here for a second i really want to see that i just haven't had the chance yeah and so and i was curious about it and the first I want to say the first three episodes, if you have Prime, I believe, the first three episodes are sort of watch-free. I don't think you even need Prime. I think you can just go to Epics, and they will have the first three episodes for you available. And after that, you have to subscribe to Epics to see anything past episode three. I have currently seen the first four, because as far as I know, that's all that's available. I don't know when the episodes come out actually it looks like episodes five and 
six may be available now. Uh, so the, the give you the basic premises. It does star star Harold Perrineau, which people may remember either from uh, you may have seen him in Oz. We've seen him. Uh, a lot of people may remember him as playing Michael on Lost. Lost is probably a helpful sort of uh, kind of reference point here because this show, at least on the surface, has a lot of similarities to Lost in the sense of that you've got a show that involves the kind of characters uh, secluded into one area with a lot of sort of strange going ons. There's clearly a mystery that the show is meeting out in little pieces as we go along and that uh, the difference here is a lost where there's a plane crash and everyone is sort of thrown into the same circumstance all at the same time. We have a situation where we get the feeling that whatever's going on has been going on for quite a while for some people in this town, and then some new characters come in. So let me give you the very, I don't even want to really talk about the, the, the premise. Uh, I'd rather just kind of go into, Bill, is that on your end? Like a beeping? Oh, sorry. I was just typing. Sorry. Oh, no, no. You're fine. Fine. I heard like a beeping yeah. noise and I wasn't sure if nope. that was. So I think that what's interesting about the uh, about the series is unlike Lost, you kind of, you have a established scenario and then you get to kind of enter this world through the brand new eyes of the people that are approaching it. So here's the synopsis for 9B. This is the synopsis according to IMDb. Unravel the mystery of a city in Central America that imprisons every... Wait a minute. Central, it's Central America. Is that the right show? See, when you... Let me... I'll, I'll cut this. When you say Central America, where do you think they're talking about? Like Guatemala? Middle America. <laughs> Damn you. IMDb. Middle they're oh, trying not, to say oh, middle America. They wrote Central America. Oh, oh, they little oh, somebody somebody used a synonym. Yes, yes, but they were unaware that Central America is a completely. <laughs> I thought you were talking like a Panama. Yeah, I'm going to actually read that one because of how inept it is, and I'll just ad admit that it's completely wrong. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I haven't seen one that bad in a while. So, <laughs> so Bill. Uh, what, before we get into this too much, I want to read the synopsis on IMDb, mostly to comment upon it. Uh, unravel the mystery of a city in Central America that imprisons everyone who enters. As the residents struggle to maintain a sense of normalcy and seek a way out, they must also survive the threats of the surrounding forest. Uh, uh, is that an accurate description? David? It is not. It is not an accurate description because <laughs> Central America, when as we, you and I were talking, Bill, we we think of something completely different. The word I believe they want to say there is Middle America, Middle America. See, I was thinking this is taking place in Panama. No, 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 not Guatemala or anything of that nature. This is, uh, <laughs> again, it looks all the the world like a kind of again Middle American town, something you might see in a you know John Mellencamp's camp song, and. Uh, it's pretty, you know, you got the diner and the, the church, you've got the, the, you see the town police officer walking around and it, a little old school in the sense that he's walking around ringing a bell in the very opening scene of the show. And I'm not giving much away here. And, uh, Terrell Perrineau 
you, and people are addressing him as the sheriff. The town seems relatively small. He's able to kind of walk through the whole thing here. And as he rings his bell, he's telling it, letting everyone know that it's time to go inside. You know, it's this is the curfew. It's time for you all to go inside. And we we witness everyone going inside and being very um, specific about locking up their doors and locking uh, locking themselves in. And there's a sort of urgency after a certain point as we see dusk approaching. We see the sheriff and, and his deputies and others getting a little bit more restless of making sure everybody is in and everybody's accounted for and everybody's where they should be uh, because we get the idea that is as, as darkness actually falls, something is going to happen and everyone needs to be in. And you see the, the jukebox in the diner just suddenly turn on and start playing a song. And it doesn't always play the same song, but these seems to be happening of its own accord. And at this point, everybody's inside, and there is this opening sequence where we see a family inside of their house, and the husband hasn't gotten home yet, and the little girl is standing there in her room, and everything is locked up, and she can hear someone speaking to her from outside of her window. And and we hear a voice talking to her in soothing tones. It's clear that she knows this person, and... Then we see her begin to interact with the person on the other side of the glass. And then everything that transpires from there, it's such a sort of a gut punch for an opening bit of the film. The first five or ten minutes of this show sort of gets you instantly involved in it. It's very uh, visceral. It sort of sets you up uh, with, with a basic concept that, hey, this is going to be intense. It's sort of playing for keeps. There's a horror element here. Paranu in the sequence that happens after sort of the show titles come up. And we see Paranu in a very strong, emotionally charged sequence. Right off the bat, this movie, excuse me, right off the bat, the show just sort of barrels in to its premise. And we have this camper full of a, you know, this camper with a family in it that has suffered recently a loss. They're clearly on a sort of a trip to sort of clear some things out and kind of try to get beyond things that have been going on, tensions in the family. Uh, the two young kids and a, a husband and a wife, and then they end up coming into this town. And the very first episode is just watching and meeting some of these characters and recognizing that things aren't right here beyond this issue of what happens when it gets dark at night. And so the once this this family is kind of built into the story, we get to see how this town operates and what the the nature of the town is through their eyes in the first episode. And then we have a few other uh, new new um, inhabitants, if you will, that come to the town. And of course, again, not really a spoiler, the basic premise here seems to be that once you get in, you cannot leave. And we don't know why or how any of that is happening. And, in, and to be fair, within the first four episodes, I still don't know all that much. I would say that in, in very basic plot details. I'm not sure I know a lot more uh, in terms of the mythology and the story after the first four episodes. But what the movie, what the show does do well is it gives you this sense of a community that is locked into a certain set of rules and has to operate uh, as human beings within these, within this context. And so you, the, the, the producers and the writers get to craft a world that operates on Rules that if you don't follow them, you may get yourselves killed. And what happens when we have to somehow make sure for the good of the community, everybody follows these rules. If you get to be the person that has to enforce the rules, what does it look like? Uh, how do you keep people safe if you can't truly, uh, you know, there's no retribution 
for people violating these these rules. And when, when these rules are violated and people get killed, what happens? Or a world where you're there and you know this is not where you belong, but we can't possibly leave. What do people choose to do in, in the fallout of that? So you see that some people have chosen different paths and there are actually uh, sort of divisions, if you will, within this town people who choose to live in different ways. And there's even an interesting element where one character is in this town and they believe that what they've walked into is basically like a very elaborate, like escape room or sort of like haunted attraction sort of event. And so it's weird to see the world explained in that way where this person thinks everything is a joke that, that that's almost enough material for an entire film right there alone. And yet the show kind of keeps finding new ways to, to approach its premise without giving away too much. So I think the problems that shows like this often have is, is the, is the ultimate fulfillment of the mystery going to be that interesting? At this point, I still don't know. But I would say that Perrineau particularly, he's so good in this role uh, that he kind of grounds everything. He is clearly sort of the emotional heart of the film right now, or the his emotional heart of the show right now. The, the show is still having a little bit of trouble, I think, fully giving us enough characters that are come alongside him and really make us care about them, too, and sort of make this ensemble. That part is still a little weak for me. I, I, a movie, excuse me, a show that I really appreciated from last year, Midnight Mass, uh, the Mike Flanagan show, that took a lot of Stephen King elements like this show does and sort of built them in. By episode five of Flanagan show, even though it had a bit of a slower pace, I really felt that I was getting a handle on these characters and what they were doing. This feels even a little bit more Stephen Kingy, where I think some of the you wonder if some of these rabbit trails are going to pay off, or if they're just going to sort of evaporate and 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 not really uh, lead to a satisfying place. I still don't know. I will say that the four episodes I've seen uh, are interesting enough and are are well made enough that you're into the mystery, you're into the characters, and you want to see where this is going to go. You're as compelled by what these people are choosing to do within the narrow confines of, of, of their situation as you are by what's actually happening out in that woods. To me, I think, you know, at some point we're going to have that maybe explained to us. I'm not as interested in that as I am interested in what it is forcing everybody else to do. Sounds really interesting. Complex yet simple. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Again, I think the trick with these shows uh, and because you're producers of Lost here, that I think it would be in their best interest to sort of... Wayward Pines is another show that this this comes to mind. And if they could find a way to keep reinventing the show, of finding ways to give us answers and then revealing another layer, that's something Lost never really did. It played with its characters, but it didn't didn't really seem to know what to do with its, its mystery. It just kept piling mysteries on top of mysteries. I think if this show... Uh, goes a route where we where it is sort of a changing identity. Wayward Pines was like that. The identity of the second season is different than the first season. And if we can, if they can do something like that with From, I think they have a they have a potential hit here on their hands. Again, I think Perrin is an actor who doesn't get a lot of credit. You know, he oftentimes he's been part of an ensemble, and here he gets to in a sense be the lead or at least the galvanizing element that everyone sort of gets behind. And I think it's worth seeing for him alone. There's a lot of fun stuff going on, particularly if you're a fan of horror mysteries. And, you know, this movie doesn't skimp on the scares or the gore that's there. Awesome. I love a little bit of gore, a little bit of horror, a little bit of sci-fi element. I like the woods. Sounds like some interesting characters. I'll definitely get on board. I just, I think, honestly, it'll be something like 
I did with the Fear Street trilogy. When I get the time to binge watch, I'll do do I'll do that. Well, I think that might be the way because Epics is something that right now for most people you're going to have to get the subscription. And what I like to do with these shows, Chapel Waits on there as well. So if you if you're someone who wants Chapel Wait based off of Stephen is based off of Jerusalem's Lot, a Stephen King short story uh, with Adrian Brody. That's really worth seeing too. So I would say that if you if you uh, Wait until this is all out. Maybe get an Epics account, watch Chapel Wait and From, and then you'll get your then cancel. <laughs> your money's worth. I don't know if Epics is going to be sponsoring us anytime soon for that advice, but <laughs> oh well. I definitely am going to check it out. You know, like if it's kind of in a Squid Games, Midnight Mass, a new cherry flavor, a cola flavor, you know that kind of deal. I'll definitely Very Stephen King. Summer. Think of the Stephen King miniseries yeah. and things we've got over that, you know, a little bit of Salem's Lot and a little bit of The Stand, you know. Uh, you know what? Here's here's here I think is a good um reference point. Uh you remember the 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 M Night Shyamalan movie The Village. And now yeah. now kind of forget about it. But remember that when the movie was coming out, remember the movie that that film was sort of advertised as as what we thought that movie was going to be about when we heard about it, when you saw the initial trailers, you know, that movie has its detractors and has people who really love it, but set all that aside and think about the movie they were advertising and the movie that we thought you were going to get from is much more like that story. I think it's playing with the context and the concepts that were set up in the, in the, in the premise for the village. So it, it it almost sounds like it has a, a just a twinge of Twin Peaks in it as well. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that I think you could you could see some of that. It's not it's not as excessively strange, and there's not as much talent to explore. <laughs> awesome. So I definitely will be checking it out. I won't get to it probably like next week or anything. But again, this is one of those along with. Beyond the infinite two minutes that I definitely want to get a hold of. Yeah, it's been a real strong week. I mean, excuse me, it's been a strong week. I mean, everything, I, everything I've seen, I've really enjoyed. Yeah, it, totally cool. And as I said, it sounds like this year is starting to really shape up to have some really quality movies, uh, TV shows, miniseries, docudramas, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's going to be a good list for horror and it's going to be a good list for I, what I like to call just everything else. So the last, <laughs> the last quick thing I want to kind of um, mention and, and, and this will be more of a quick like blurb than maybe a full review because I've only seen one episode, but um, Paramount plus has launched their second season of Picard, the kind of Star Trek spinoff that is follows follows Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, later in his life, we already had one season of that that brought back a lot of characters and a lot of plot points and and entire uh, sort of concepts that that were part of the original Star Trek: The Next Generation storyline, and wove them into a sort of a relatively cohesive whole. Uh, there was definitely an element of sort of bringing back pieces and playing with them in a different way, so that the show had a different sensibility than the the kind of um, very like idea heavy conversation heavy uh almost stage play-esque feels that a show like star trek the next generation had uh, which i love P picard was more action driven but i did enjoy uh stewart's performance i enjoyed the way they brought characters back like brent spiner and john frakes and marina sertis and, and some of these characters and uh 
and built them into the story in different ways. And I really liked where the story went ultimately and, and all of the little pieces that it was able to sort of weave together things involving the Borg and things like that and characters. So if you're a Star Trek fan, you kind of know what I'm talking about and you probably got a chance to see Picard and you already know whether you enjoyed that first season. The second season is again, bringing in characters uh, that have always been within the context of Picard's life and in Star Trek, the next generation. We do have a return. It's not a spoiler to say we have a return of the Borg and the Borg, Queen that was originally played by Alice Krieg in Star Trek First Contact. And we bring back John Delancey, who plays Q, sort of a multi-dimensional sort of cosmic entity that has been sort of bantering back and forth and, and sparring with Picard over the years and uh, over the decades and through time and space. And so we've got a storyline that seems to be set up like some of those classic Star, Star Trek stories to throw the cast sort of back in time. And it looks like maybe we'll, we'll have a situation where they find themselves in modern day, much like we had the, uh, our modern day, not, not their modern day. You remember Star Trek for the search for, uh, sorry, Star Trek for the voyage home. They had the search for the whales. where they go back into like 1980s San Francisco. And I think that we've seen that in Star Trek first contact where they, they, there's a back in time element. There's multiple, uh, alternate realities going on. The first episode shows that they've sort of uh, they've, they've they've brought the cast back that we got to meet in the first season, and we see again. Stewart's always giving a, a a strong, sturdy performance. Here we're sort of delving back into Picard's life. I, I I'm always a little hesitant when we 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 have these characters all this storied backstory already. We've seen so much of their lives through these countless episodes, and yet we we're going to go back to their childhood because something you know. There's always mommy or daddy issues, no matter how old you are and how many starships you've commandeered. It all comes back to something that may have happened to you when you were like six or seven years old. So I'm not a huge fan of that element, but I think that it seems like the season's going to have enough going on. And I really enjoy, again, it's a case where I enjoy spending time with these characters. And the, the, the character of Picard has always been one of my favorites, I think, in terms of space captains. He wasn't getting as many green-skinned women as, as, you know, as Kirk was. And uh, not as many, uh, you know, bare knuckle brawls, but I, I kind of appreciated his, uh, you know, he was a little bit more genteel, a little bit more cultured, I think. And I, the shows, the show developed a, a, to me, it developed a kind of nice rhythm of telling interesting sci-fi stories at the same time, realizing that it was a little more of an action adventure than maybe previous Star Trek entries have been. It looks like the same will be true here. And it was a lot of fun to see Whoopi Goldberg back for a small cameo and to see John Delancey doing his thing. So I think if you're a fan of the series, it looks like they're going to have another good season set up for us. Awesome. And this reminds me of a picture, unrelated but somewhat related, that I just put up on the uh, group page. <laughs> and it, it depicts a picture of Jason facing off against Darth Vader. So it's kind of the merging of, of the horror and the sci-fi. And it's basically, it just got real. So people, who you got, Jason or the dark side? See, the thing here is that technically speaking, I mean, did Lar Park Lincoln have the force in whatever Friday the 13th movie that was, where she had telekinesis? Oh, that's right. I mean, yeah. you know, it's sort of you pick him up, you slam him into a tree, you slam him into another tree, you bury him at the bottom of the lake, and you go home and have a couple drinks. And then he's got a lightsaber, too, so I, I don't know. 
I mean, I mean, the thing is, Jason could lose an arm to a lightsaber. That ain't stopping him. That's true. But, you, you know, I think you're looking at a scenario sort of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where, if, you know, unless I break your kneecaps, <laughs> what you going to do? And you got that hockey mask on. So, yeah. I mean, you got a, a helmet versus a mask. Like, and they're about the same height. Like, it's, it would be a fascinating blending of horror sci-fi and one classic ending in an Errol Flynn kind of finish. I'm wondering if you've got the force, can you just pick him up and kind of rip, rip his body parts off? Like, you know, pulling wings off a fly. Can't you just make his whole, can you scanners, you know, blow him up with your brain? I'm, I'm sure some, some star Wars aficionados can answer these questions for me. I, I know that. I mean, my first initial thought was that uh, Darth Vader could just, throw him out of the ship and throw him into space. But we know Jason survives in space. That's very true. This, this is, this unfortunately is maybe not as far flung as we'd like to hope it is, but so, you know, uh, both guys with yeah. mass and heavy breathing and, you know, they seem to stalk women. So I don't know. Weigh in. Let us know. Do you, do you got, are you team Jason or are you team Darth Vader? I don't see how Jason has a <laughs> handle on this. I mean, again, <laughs> I mean, other than his, I mean, what is it? Uh, Tommy Jarvis in part four cut off every limb, threw him in the water, and then he comes back the next one. I mean, I mean, yeah, he might, he may survive, but you know, you throw him on planet Hoth or something, he has to wander around on in an, on an ice planet, you know, for a bit. I mean, I don't know how much he's actually accomplishing there. Then again, a little green guy about three feet tall could also probably take Darth Vader. So you know, who knows. Anyway, exactly. I don't know. Anyways. Do you have anything else, Bill? Of um, I do. I do have a couple more, but you know what? I'll save them for a future yeah, episode. We'll get them this, next time. But we're getting into two and a half hour territory. People have listened to our voice enough, so it's been a great episode. I love these ones because, as again, no pressure. We just chew the fat about stuff we've seen. We try to get a little bit of the old, a little bit of the new. What's on TV? What's up in pop culture? And just yeah, get it. So if, if people like it. Let us know. If you don't, tell us. Well, and check it out, too. I will be putting up um, this week. I'm going to put up the schedule for episodes. So I think we've got enough going on. We can kind of say, here the episodes come up. I'm not going to announce it here right now. But check out the Facebook page. We'll have the uh, the schedule up where you can see the upcoming episodes. We're starting to make sure there's posts for those upcoming episodes. Uh, directly after this one this week, we will have the phantom um excuse me we'll have the illustrated fan episode it was originally gonna go before this but we sort of uh we had so many new movies to review we figured we'd put this one out first and um so yeah bill do you have anything else other than uh everyone check out the facebook page check out our podcast over at phantom galaxy podbean.com and check us out on twitter at phantom galaxy yeah other than that uh not really other than uh if you like what you hear from me, you can find me at Land of the Creeps as well. So check them out. Greg and Dave do a great job with me. And uh, But as I said, we're really interactive. If there's a movie that we've overlooked or something inspires you from what we've said or you just have a random thought, send them to us. We have no problem collaborating with others or doing themed episodes. Otherwise, you can check me out on Letterboxd and just send us a message or send it to Nathan who can relay it to me. <laughs> and you guys know me. I'm not tough to find. If I'm not got my nose deep in uh, the volume of a rectangular prism, I'm watching movies. 
There you go. And the the other thing I, will, I just want to mention in terms of podcasts and stuff is, of course, you can find Bill over at Land of the Creeps as co-host there. And then just recently, I was on Trey Whetstone, who's a friend of the show, uh, his podcast, Screaming Through the Ages, where he looks at sort of horror through different eras and through different sort of trends and things like that. And he was he's been doing a series on uh, remakes versus the original films. And I got to join him on there for an episode uh, looking at Nosferatu, the classic uh, silent horror film, and it's remake by Werner Herzog, uh, also Nosferatu from 1979, and then also the two versions of the Cat People, the Cat People from 1942, and the Cat People from 1982. And I was just th- I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great an episode of Werner Herzog films? I was just I was just looking at a set of Herzog films that you know some of the older ones like Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre the Wrath of God and things like that. Oh, I haven't seen Aguirre in ages. Yeah. That would be a really So I good think watch. I think that I think you're right on there and I think I think we would have to bring Becker in for that one for sure. I know he's a big <laughs> Herzog fan. So And the last th- I was going to say the last thing I'll say is since Trey has already announced it on his Screaming Through the Ages uh, page, I will be on with him. I'll be recording in the next week or so. We're doing a top 10 list of Vincent Price films. So you'll get double Phantom Galaxy if you go over and check out. Uh, Pretty much, the, yeah. The Screaming Through the Ages. It was a great podcast anyway. Big yeah. shout out there. So Trey is amazing. He has such a knowledge of films. He's a well-spoken dude, and he's a family man like we are. He's got good sensibilities. Check out Screaming Through the Ages because it's a top-notch and it gets good guests. And by the time you're hearing this episode, you can also probably hear the latest Land of the Creeps episode, which is dedicated to cannibal films. Cannibals. Cannibals. So if you, you know, get cannibals yourself of all kinds. get yourself a nice big pit beef sandwich and the metaphorical cannibals, yeah. we have emotional cannibals or mostly, you know, they eat meat. Yeah, eat flesh. But you know, it, it, it never get stuck in a Central American country looking for your long-lost sister. Yeah, yeah, that the, Still sometimes have a hard time believing that became a subgenre. But anyway, <laughs> check it out. Enjoy. I'm sure there'll be something uh, over there for everybody. Did we get into any eating Raul? That's a big question. Uh, it, it, it was mentioned. It, it was mentioned. I, I, I happen to like that film. Uh, it was a Paul Bartel, I think. But anyway. Paul Bartel, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's uh, what I have. And of course, we kind of have one additional uh, treat here that you'll get to hear myself and Joel Robertson cover the batman the new matt reeves take on the dark knight on the cape crusader so uh without further ado here's that otherwise bill take care ram have a good day okay and now for our last segment of the show as promised i have uh, joel robertson here from retro movie geek and several other podcasts he can, he can fill you in on that and we are going to talk about Matt Reeves, the Batman. And I'm not going to do too much of a, a synopsis, I think. If you don't know anything about Batman, then maybe you should just go watch the movie, if that's even humanly possible that you don't. Uh, and if not, maybe you can go check out Batman and Robin, forget everything about that movie, and then start over and watch the rest of the movies. But Matt Reeves' Batman is uh, pretty much far and away from Batman the Vegas Floor Show, because this one... Uh, goes about as dark, I think, as we've ever seen in terms of mood and atmosphere. Uh, the ba- very basic setup here is instead of having another origin story, we're seeing the catalyst for Bruce Wayne's transformation into the Batman. This is about two years into Batman doing his crime-fighting gig, and Gotham City is, for the most part, none the better for it. That's an interesting change. We saw that when Christopher Nolan's Batman and 
Christian Bale donned the the cape and the cowl that after a, a little bit of time, both positive and negatively, he started to see change in the city. Batman's been doing this uh, long enough that the criminals look at the shadows with fear. They see the bat signal, and it sometimes deters them from crime. But overall, the city is still eating itself. It's still falling into decay. And crime, in terms of the, the mob and higher-up criminal groups, are still running the city. And Batman himself is focused mostly on vengeance and mostly on trying to change things to no avail. There's talk of renewal. There's talk of good people trying to change things in the political system. Nothing is changing, which is driving Bruce kind of further and further within himself. And then we come to this serial killer that emerges in the city in a sort of Zodiac style. He's leaving messages for the police that also corroborate the Batman that are sent directly to the Batman. And so with the help of Jim Gordon, who's played here by Jeffrey Wright, obviously Robert Pattinson is playing Bruce Wayne and Batman. He begins to follow the Riddler's clues and delve into the criminal underworld, which includes characters like Oswald Cobblepots, a, who's basically a henchman for Carmen Falcone. Here we have an to me, completely unrecognizable Colin Farrell playing Oswald Cobblepots, who will eventually one day become the Penguin here. You, we don't get many references. And then we have, of course, John Turturro's playing Falcone, which I didn't know he was even in the film until I started watching it. He's He's got a creepy menace. And then Zoe Kravitz is Selena Kyle, who's a tough but seductive take on Catwoman. Again, most of these characters, except for Batman, have been stripped of their more comic book style flourishes and uh, the riddler we don't even see for a majority of the film this is a very dark a very long and a rather serious take on the subject matter uh i don't know if i need anything else with that synopsis we also of course have uh we've got alfred the butler this time played by andy circus and a slightly different take that sort of melds the butlers and the alfreds that we've seen in previous films joel uh anything i missed no, man. I think we're done. <laughs> I think we're done. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the Batman. Go see it. Like, you're going to listen to anything we say anyway. <laughs> exactly. 100% agree with that. Uh, yeah, no, man. I, I totally agree. Uh, the, the way you laid everything out. Um, I definitely think it goes without saying this is the broodiest, most emo Batman ever to the point where, you know, what it, the, I would argue the theme song is literally a Nirvana song. <laughs> It is. It is. Well, you know what? I was going to say, we jump in and say what we thought of the film, but let's talk about that aspect up front because I, people have a different reactions to it. I think going in, I kind of noticed that we were going to have this sort of brooding emo sort of Batman. My son went with me to see the movie. He's nine. And the minute that you first see him without the, the mask on and he's, his hair is all sweaty and dark and over his eyes, he's still got the, the black makeup around his eyes, which which has a purpose, you know, it's so that you can't see sure. his uh doesn't doesn't break the illusion when you're trying to threaten criminals. But he's like, why does Bruce Wayne look like a hot mess? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> then I realized my son has no context of emo or goth. So yeah, yeah. Got, that was our discussion on the way home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does he look like a character from a Tim Burton movie? Oh wait. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly well how how did that work or not work for you let's talk about that first i have a few thoughts on it i well i love the fact that this is i mean easily the most like horror adjacent 
Batman, I feel oh, I, for sure. I mean, he, I mean, the whole the Riddler is legit scary as a as a villain. I mean, which is amazing when yeah. I, I put, picture in my head Jim Carrey or you know, or, right. or, or or is that Frank Gorshin? Right, that was yeah, the original. Frank Gorshin was the Riddler. Yeah. yeah. So so whenever I picture them, I do not. I mean, this guy is the Zodiac killer, and that in the way they play it and where it all ends up is actually terrifying in its own yes. right. Yes. Um, I feel a little conflicted because on one hand, I mean, this movie very much totally reminded me of seven, which is, I love, I love seven very, very much. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm okay with that. Cause I love seven, but I think for me, I prefer more of a, the dark Knight you know, Christopher Nolan level of darkness with my Batman. And it's not because yeah. I'm, I'm bothered by it. It's just, I guess it wasn't, um, really fun in that in that sense you know what i mean i'm not saying it has to be campy and over the top batman and robin style but i guess i was looking for a little bit more of like the dark knight type of vibe now that being said i did really 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 enjoy this movie and the fact that it's three hours long and it didn't really feel like three hours is kind of oh, amazing yeah. um i'm a huge fan of matt reeves's um uh, apes films that he did um speaking of andy circus and uh so i really loved that and i and when the nirvana song kicked in at first it because it's not one of my better, I, even though I have the Nevermind album and everything, I don't feel like that was one I listened to that much, that, that particular song. Yeah. And so when it played, I was like, that's Nirvana. What? Yes. I know that song. <laughs> I haven't heard it in like 20 years, but what is that song? It's kind of refreshing. You realize you don't hear Nirvana songs in movies anymore. Exactly. And so, and then when you find out like that song, I think somebody did an interview with Kurt Cobain back in the day about it. And he said it was like a fantasy he had about a homeless man strung out under a bridge dying of AIDS. I'm like, wow, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that level of depressing is pretty much the tone of this movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I you know we, it is. It's so it yeah, it is oppressive. I don't. It isn't as dark as as seven, but I think that the content is there. I think the movie is not lively in that sense. I will definitely agree with you there. It's so it's so oppressive that when Jeffrey Wright's character will make a joke or so here, the movie kind of stops, and you don't know was <laughs> yeah. that like funny, funny or not yeah, exactly. Funny? And uh, now that being said, what I kind of like about this movie for years, I have always sort of you know, been telling anybody who, who would listen that I thought kind of, to me, the perfect Batman for me would be a, a detective movie. I didn't think anyone would ever make it where it's a le legitimate mystery film and the characters interact with each other the way they would in a noir, like a Maltese Falcon, right? Mm -hmm. and Batman and the Riddler and the Penguin and all of these characters would just sort of be pieces of pawns and a puzzle on a much larger tapestry. So if you had like a Chinatown with Batman and I, mm -hmm. and I personally, I always thought it should take place in the 1930s. I think that would have diffused yes. excessive darkness. Yes. I didn't think anyone would ever even approach making that movie. And yet minus the 30 setting, that's basically this movie. I mean, in some ways this feels thematically speaking, the most like the comic books, but then what they've done is leached out anything that would make you feel like a comic book at all, mm -hmm. uh, which means that even though, Heath Ledger's Joker was excessively scary. He still felt like a comic book villain. You know, mm -hmm. the things that he did still existed in a world of here's right versus wrong. And the good guys are going to win the day. And here you don't get the idea that that might even happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's just a very realistic take. I loved the movie for that, but I almost want this to be a one-off. I don't want this to be the new Batman franchise. I would almost rather this be a very interesting 
uh, noir take on Batman. And I know that they kind of set it up towards the end, but I don't know I can take <laughs> multiple yeah. versions of this film. That being said, it almost was sort of a masterpiece to me because of how much I enjoy Batman. And I thought how well the acting and the sequences were done here. The city looks fantastic. I think they do an excellent job of mel melding that very real world. Hey, this is Chicago that Nolan did in Batman, the Batman mm -hmm. films. And then the Burton weird uh, gothic German expressionist art architecture. They meld that together. So you have this city that kind of feels like a real city, but also feels like a dream city a little bit. And mm -hmm. I love those scenes in the beginning of watching the criminals just looking at the shadows and not sure Batman is there or he's not there. They, I think they capture all of that perfectly. One thing I really love about this movie is sort of the portrayal of Batman. I know that some people, you know, the emo thing kind of makes sense to me because mm -hmm. you've got this guy who's very young, who's experienced trauma. Who's going to wear a bat suit everywhere they go unless you're A, a lunatic, or B, excessively gothic and given over to theatricality? Yes, and I will say, too, that as one who's not a big comic book guy, as it's been yeah. you know, very often pointed out to me by Daryl and Peter <laughs> on Russian Movie Geek, that... I will say what I do know, and I feel like Batman is one at least I know enough about, that as a character, and what I thought this movie did very, very well, is maybe better than any Batman movie, was showing how that line between Bruce's desire for justice and vengeance and the idea of madness and him being, the, the line between him and all of the criminal element is so just narrow. I mean, it's so, like, to the, yeah. to the point where, you know, there's a there's a key line that I don't want to give away for spoiler reasons. Where you know, early on in the movie, Batman says this line, and then towards the end, a certain villain says this line, and it, yeah. it just that moment where you're like, yeah, you know, you guys are kind of two sides of the same coin, and at least in in, in the way that uh, you you know you're viewing the world, and really, I think the key is what you said. This is a one off is an absolute masterpiece to me. But I think knowing that there was, because it's going to make a gajillion dollars and there's yeah. going to be like at least three of them, I, I, I will more than likely see all of them. I just feel like, to your point, it's such a, just a dark, dreary experience that I could see revisiting this movie every several years. But it's, and as much as like I love Seven, I don't, you know, do you want to like, like mire yourself in that world all the time? It's like, not really. Not, I don't want to like live in that world all the time. So uh, from that perspective, but I think that at the core of this movie, and this is what it deals so well with, uh, is corruption. And um, yeah. uh, what, what would you uh, you mentioned a couple other things earlier, and I was going to tie it because because the ones uh, what did you say? I'm going completely messing up the the flow of our conversation. <laughs> but you said something. Um, I feel like you used a couple of their movie examples, and the, the thought it occurred to me, like yes, because those are all kind of dealing with Chinatown. The yes, Maltese that was Falcon. it. Thank you. Yes, those. Yes, and uh, and Casablanca. Um, like yes. anything like where you know you're dealing with. The, this sort of rooted cor this corruption so deep in the system itself that these characters are hopeless which is ultimately what a lot of the the uh, the villains in this despite that they're completely insane and uh they're they're just doing really horrible stuff and the way they're going about this is completely and utterly wrong there's that element where you have to understand the system has so, in their minds, failed them, and it's so corrupt beyond saving that they feel justified in doing what they're doing. And I, I think this movie does that maybe better than any movie that falls under, you know, the even just the superhero, you know, 
blanket at all. I, I feel like this movie does that idea of corruption and what it does to people. And, you know, they don't get their justice. They don't get feeling, you know, they don't, they don't get any feeling like there's hope or a possibility of a better tomorrow. And this is what you can end up with is this world, which sucks. <laughs> yes. And I, yeah, I, what I think I like about that is it destabilizes Batman. It doesn't make him singularly a hero anymore because what is he even able to save in a mm-hmm. sense? Uh, but it doesn't make the movie any less interesting because you're following the clues and you're following, and there is some kinship between he and say Morgan Freeman and seven. And I actually really like the interactions between he and, uh, Commissioner Gordon in this yes. movie, you get to finally see them sort of trying to solve crimes together. I saw a funny comment, I think it was on Twitter, somebody said that the reason uh, writes Gordon keeps calling him man all the time is he thinks it's his last name. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I will say too, that I'm glad you brought Jeffrey Wright because I, I'm a huge Gary Oldman fan, so he'll always be yeah. awesome to me, but I think this may be my favorite Gordon. I, I think I, so. He's so, he kind of recedes in a little bit, but you see he's exactly, and you can watch him trying to be the guardrails for Batman. It's the same way I really liked uh, um, Andy Serkis as well, even though he didn't have as many scenes as Alfred. He's not sort of doing that full-blown, I need an Oscar thing that Michael Caine did, but I feel like these two guys are trying to keep the guardrails up for this young man who's clearly struggling. I, I will say this, and this is like one of the few, for me, negatives about the movie. I love Andy Serkis. I liked him as Alfred, but that was the one, even though I've seen that relationship, uh, you know, all the way back to the Adam West, you know, like it, I, you know, that you, it, it's, I've, I feel like we know that relationship. So the question is sort of like, you know, spoiler alert, do we need to see Batman's parents get shot in the alley yeah, for the yeah. one millionth time? But at the same time, I feel like that for a three hour long movie, there was so few scenes between them and interactions. Oh, yes. I never really got the bond between that Alfred and that Bruce. That once there's one scene towards the end, it's really the only scene. And to me, it was almost powerful because you suddenly realize, oh, maybe he actually does care about Alfred beyond him just being yeah. the guy who watches over him. Uh, but there was just so much going on in the movie that I agree we could have had more of him, but I don't know. I think that his scenes were strong, um, but I, I, you do get this image of, you're right, they, they kind of have this one scene, and they could have probably used a few more scenes. They probably shot a few more scenes. Yeah. There's so much going on. Uh, a couple quick things I want to talk about. I really like the action scenes and the way they were handled in this movie, and they, they didn't exactly feel like the ones in The Dark Knight, which were spectacular. Mm-hmm. There's a chase scene in the film here that almost felt like I was watching Mad Max. Yes, it, that minutes. was incredible. That was incredible. Yeah. And that car, let me, I'm going to tell you right now, hands down, my favorite Batmobile. That thing was oh, yeah. awesome. And there's this scene that's uh, very, it's so metal where it's yes. through this flame. And uh, <laughs> yes. but, but the way the close, but it, it's funny because these are not shot lane. There's not that many action scenes. Don't get me wrong. It's not an action film at all. I mean, my son said, well, dad, that was pretty interesting for a movie where people just stood in rooms and talked. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't expect that from a Batman film. But the other, so the one thing I do want to talk about quickly is the portrayal here. I think Pattinson was very, very good. I think that. Uh, well, the most interesting thing I think about what he does is, to me, you're always grading the Batmans on how are they as Bruce Wayne and how are they as Batman. There's no, there was no. Uh, Bale's character had already reduced that, right? Because he's almost always Bruce Wayne, and he creates Batman as a persona. Mm-hmm. This is different because I think Pattinson. I don't know, and I can't say this for sure. And I, you know, this is not intended to, you know, uh, defend anyone or anything like this. But I have to wonder if there wasn't a discussion at some point about 
Bruce Wayne's mental health seriously as they were approaching this character? Or is he on the spectrum? Because they've all, no one's ever answered the question, why, really, why would the guy dress up like a bat? I think the Nolan films tried to avoid it by having him so fixated on, I need a symbol, right? Yes, yeah. But this guy wears it everywhere he goes. I mean, he's in a room of like 10 cops who are investigating a crime scene, and you can hear the rubber creaking, and he's sort of like standing really close to them. Yeah. And the way Pattinson plays it, he's sort of staring off into the mid-distance a lot of times. You get the idea that the bat suit and the whole persona is sort of a barrier for him between being fully out into the world. Like this is how he can interact with the world beyond Alfred and beyond Wayne Manor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's a really good way of putting it. I will say that again, without giving anything away, there's a key moment where an opportunity was presented that his mask could have easily been yanked off his head. And I feel like probably too much time transpired based on like where they are at the one location to where they go to another location that I kind of feel like somebody would have done it. I, I don't, I don't know that they would have, uh, you know I mean? I feel like somebody would have, I mean, maybe you could make the argument Gordon was there and he wants to help protect, you know, this identity of this guy, which, you know, but even he, when I think he's got to be, he's got to wonder. <laughs> you know I mean, well, he kind of, he's like, I still don't know who you are, but I think there's, I think there's also that point of like, will this cause me more problems? <laughs> who yep. is this? If I, if fair I pull point. this off and it's the mayor, what's going <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. And I, and I think that to your point about the mental illness, uh, illness thing, I think that's, there was definitely, that was an aspect of this because it, it comes up thematically throughout the movie. And I think that, you know, whether it's, you know, he's on the spectrum or whether it's that he's, you know, just because he was so traumatized by you know these events of his childhood that he's just mired in, in this, you know, this mindset that he's in. Um, I think that this movie, again, much like the corruption angle, handles that in a way that it's very obvious, but yet not heavy handed. Like it doesn't ever feel like that's the point. You know, yeah, I mean, even the yeah. corruption, as much as that's like such a central element, it always has been really, you know, of Gotham and and everything. But I felt like this movie handled all of those, you know, it's basically juggling a lot of thematic balls in the air and it didn't drop any, which is really amazing, I think. And I and I do want to say that both uh, Colin Farrell as Oz, I mean, really, the whole cast is like yeah. ridiculously great. But the fact that that dude is as pretty as he is and he was willing <laughs> to just be hidden. Did you notice him at all? Like I watched that movie, not knowing it was him, and and look, I couldn't tell a, an inflection. Not a uh, bit. A, a not tick, a nothing. Bit. I never saw him a single time. Not a single time. And there was, I think, one review I had listened uh, to where somebody made the point that like, yeah, you know, when you first see him, he's like, no way, it's calling from. And then he started talking. And I was like, I could see it. And it's like, really? Because I was trying. <laughs> yeah, me too. But you know what? I think here's an interesting thing. Is we're saying this is a one off, and I think it should be. But they build these characters enough that you could see watching them again, like this. Yes. Uh, as well, Kabelpots guy is an interesting character, and he's like you said, he's is he a bad guy? He's a bad guy, but he's also all these characters are just trying. Everyone in this city is trying to scrabble and just dig claw and, and get what they can where they can with the exception of two guys one who's driven by vengeance and a sense of justice and who wants to clean the city up and the other guy who wants to expose it all and burn it to the ground and and let's talk about that character for just a few minutes because he doesn't show up till near the end paul dano was terrifying oh like, yes absolutely like it, i that that ticked the movie into a whole nother avenue and that's when i was like how are how far are they going to go with this because i'm looking at my son I'm like this guy 
like the way he's played, he's like real life serial killer all the way. Yes, hundred percent agree with you. And actually, I'll, I'll, I took all three of my boys, two of which you absolutely love this movie. Weren't I mean they got that it was dark and messed yeah. up, but I think they loved that about it. <laughs> the yeah, other one, the other one who is more sensitive to these things, and actually it's funny because that's more like what I was like as a kid. Yeah, he sure. liked it, but he was like deeply bothered by it. Like, I think it really <laughs> messed him up a little bit. Like he was just yeah. like, I don't like, you know, cause I think that, cause it is a, he's legitimately, I mean, as great as Heath Ledger is in, in the dark Knight, I'm, I think this, you gotta say, this is probably the most terrifying Batman villain overall that there's ever been. I, I mean, it's just, he's absolutely. I would horrifying. not recommend typically putting a character like this in the Batman movies. Cause I think an average Batman movie, it would imbalance it. It would. Yes. Throw it all off. Yeah. But the but, overall tone of this movie and everything being what it is. And again, if it stood on its own, although it's interesting, you said the thing about uh, uh, the penguin as a character. I I literally heard this morning that I guess there was talk of them doing some kind of, and not necessarily a movie spinoff. I almost sound like they were talking about like some kind of se- like a series about him. That they would be about his you know rise up, blah blah blah, uh, in the criminal world. Almost like they compared it to like Scarface or something. So I part of me thinks, ah, don't do that. No, oh, I'm sure that yeah, please because it'll it don't yeah, don't yeah. do that. But we already done that. What's it called? Gotham. I mean, yeah, the, exactly. Some, yeah, there's already Pennyworth out there somewhere. So. Yeah. Now I will say one other point that has to be made besides the fact that who is not remotely surprised that Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet would make beautiful children. Yes. Um, <laughs> Zoe Kravitz, honestly, hands down, best Catwoman, and I love and I love Michelle Pfeiffer and all. It's all great, but even Eartha Kitt. But I think I, there was because as a care as maybe even you could say a, a, the best Selena Kyle. You know the, yes. the the best of like the, when she's not Catwoman, she's so interesting. But when she is Catwoman, it it never feels like wrong. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel forced or fake. In fact, no. even, and they never even say that. I mean, they make some sly references to her having lots of cats, but that's about it. Which is a funny scene. The way yes. the way in studies, he he doesn't it's like he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to talk to me, but he just says you got a lot of cats. Which <laughs> 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 is like I felt like yeah. it was Dwight Schrute in that moment. Or yes, yeah, uh, yeah, very but, much so. But uh, yeah, you know, and at one point she makes that the bat and the cat thing, and this is one of the few cases where I could see have them move to a sunnier city, and I would watch these two fight crime together. There, it got a weird kind of twisted chemistry, but it works. It, it, it's like I'd like to see them paired up. She's really good. I would never have said this after that abomination from back in two thousand four, but. I think, you know, we're saying this is a one-off, but if you took anybody and gave them their spinoff, I would watch the Zoe Kravitz Catwoman yes. movie, yes. for sure. I think I would actually be an advocate for that. She's so good. And that's what you, you you know, you kind of need that kind of femme fatale character. That's not what she is. But in the space of that character, instead of giving us that normal sort of character where can Batman trust her, can he not? They kind of do away with that. And they just make her a very interesting kind of character that is, she has her own goals here and she has her own um agendas and then we're not worried that she's necessarily going to screw bruce over because she needs him at this current point and mm-hmm. they don't really go for that Catwoman as the villain angle but i she just fabulous have you seen the movie kimmy on hbo max no no i've not she's in that too she's really really good in it so if you get a chance okay check that out. yeah and, and uh, to your point about a spinoff i and and keeping with this what I like is this sort of new tradition where, you know, Dark Knight was a kind of a crime thriller, 
as much as it was a Batman movie. This movie, you know, like a horror adjacent, but it's a detective movie. If they do a Catwoman Cat rather movie, I want not a superhero movie. I want a like a heist film. That's I want, exactly yes. it. Yes, I want. Yes. I want. I want uh, like a you know to catch a thief. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with, exactly Zoe, right. with Zoe Kravitz as uh, Selena Kyle, aka Catwoman. And I, yeah, I think it would be fantastic. But I think Reeves kind of knocks out of the park here. I loved the filmmaking. I think it's the best looking Batman yeah. movie, which is some saying something because of how good batman lends itself to looking visually great um mm-hmm. you know with a with a few minor exceptions <laughs> yes. films over the years but i think that this to me i was not a fan of the batman versus superman i had no problem with with uh, ben affleck as batman but those movies that you know they felt like they were really pushing into this is a comic book and i don't mind that but i think here they do restore a sense of character the last thing i want to say that i appreciate is this is the first Batman. i guess nolan sort of did but this feels like the first batman movie where there is an actual arc for batman himself mm-hmm. an arc that is not i decided to wear a costume you know that this batman actually moves from one emotional state towards another emotional state by the end of this film like where he comes is you can see it if you think about oh well how should batman be if you look at this and say that's not how i imagine batman you get the idea that this is a guy he, it's not an origin story but he's in a transition to be the character that you regularly know the mm-hmm. guy who's been doing this 10 years is going to look different. And I liked that there was an acknowledgement that he's, he can't sustain being this. The, the people call him vengeance as a nickname, like jokingly, like half the characters in the movie, just call him vengeance. Like mm-hmm. vengeance come over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, They're it, kind of subtly mocking him, but yeah. And, and that, and that living in that mindset will just eventually destroy you. Yeah, right, so, so I, I like that you yeah. don't normally, how can Batman sustain who he is? He really can't. And I think his first movie suggests, oh, Batman, that there's an interchange that seems to be happening in Batman himself, that the city can't change, he's got to change. Yes, yes, which I love, and honestly, personally, I love that message. <laughs> that, I, well, that's the thing, yeah, yeah, this is the Batman for our times, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I love the idea that, yeah, you know what, you may not always get the, the system and, and all these external forces to, to be able to change, but... You know, you know, work, work, work on the interior, my friend. And, uh, you know, who know, who knows what kind of world awaits, but we'll have to see with the second movie that we're inevitably going to get. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's definitely the one I had one single element. I thought this movie was excellent across the board. The one element that kind of balked and I don't need this was there is a, and you know what I'm talking about. There's a call out to another Batman character that you sort of inevitably knew, but it's the one moment that feels like a bit yep. of a fan service. Yep. That none of the rest of this movie feels like fan service at all. Correct. And yes. there's this one moment and I just thought, I don't need this, this movie. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Make it, make it a, a, a stinger or something. I don't even want that, but like, I don't need this, you know, at all. And it was the one moment. And in fact, they're, they're playing with silhouettes here and, and my son and I are like, well, I think it's that one, but it could be this one. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we weren't sure what we were looking at exactly. But um, how about your rating on this one, Joel? <sighs> I, I teeter. Um, and it's probably going to sound like I'm coming in lower than I, I, cause I really, really like this movie a lot. I guess the question comes to how I always say, go back to rewatchability. Like every once in a while, yeah. we are revisiting the dark Knight to me. Cause to me, that's the, the, the best one. Like I, I still think that's basically a 10 for me. I love that movie. Um, I, I'm going to come in at the moment on this one at an 8.5, about a strong 8.5 leaning towards a nine. 
for me, which is I mean, I'm still ridiculously high. I mean, I know it's not yeah. like I'm saying it's a six, <laughs> but the uh, but yeah, for me, it's like an eight point five. I absolutely say you should see it in the theater, get the full experience. The score is fantastic. Like back, we kind of just we briefly mentioned the Nirvana song, but the way that's incorporated, um, I loved the score to this thing. Yeah, they do the driving beats thing, which has become an element of Batman, obviously since Batman Returns. I mean, not Batman Returns, but the Dark Knight, uh, Batman Begins, rather. And they, what they do here is that it's just pulsing and it's like unforgiving yes. and it's a little punishing. And I like that about it. You know, for me, one of my favorite uh, genres is noir. Uh, I loved the Batman comics growing up and things like that. And they were primarily detective stories. They were definitely a little sunnier than this for the most part, by and large. But there was a darkness and a broodingness to them. Uh, for me, this actually is my favorite Batman. This is I love the Dark Knight and I love Batman Begins, actually. And I love, yeah, I love that movie Batman too. Returns, which is its own yep. sort of weird, yep. surreal gothic. And this movie feels like an amalgamation in some ways of all of those. But to me, it also feels like just a movie. It's just a good movie divorced from the superhero antics to me it is a 10 i very rarely give out 10s but it and but it's only because i have been specifically asking for this exact kind of movie <laughs> yeah that's great. i feel like i can't be like oh yeah you know what it, it there did i have some minor quibbles i did but i thought they knocked this one out of the park but i think they did it so well that next time i'm okay at this point as dark as this one was i'm okay if you give me another 1960s batman you can put the waps and the slams on screen i might need that next time yeah yeah but probably not with not within this universe not within this universe but but get us a catwoman movie and if you want to maybe maybe she and penguin could have one of those bumbling uh, (laughs) like the 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 grizzled angry cop he'll be yeah he'll he'll be cary grant (laughs) <laughs> she'll be she'll be grace kelly I mean, it's all good man i could see that working though i actually i could see that as it'd be kind of a hot mess but you know anyway uh joel thank you so much for absolutely man this. my honor i think we're both at the point you say go out and see it to me it's one of the best it's one of the best movies i've seen so far this year oh yeah hands down it hands down it is yes be on the list and I, i'm surprised that after this many iterations of batman we're still getting something that's this good mm-hmm. and in a sense this different because uh you know, this character does have durability. I think the, the the lesson should be get out there and tell stories like this and go out. And, you know, one of my favorite Batman movies, Batman, the mask of the phantasm, uh, the animated mm-hmm. film from back in the day, like, a, I remember that. like about 70 some minutes long. That one is probably the closest to this one in the sense that the characters are in an orbit of a city they can't control. And it's not really about any one of them per se. But uh, Joel, thank you. You want to let everybody know where else they can find you on the sure. interwebs, as you say? Uh, yes, go check out uh, Retro Movie Geek. And uh, if you're easily offended, I would advise not checking out Retro Movie Geek, but it's there. It's a thing that it happened. And <laughs> Terror on the Tube. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Uh, Terror on the Tube is another one where we talk about uh, horror and suspense TV movies from the 70s, 80s, and at least on one occasion, 90s. Although Peter assures me we have a few more in the pipeline that are, are of the 90s, so we'll see. Uh, um, and of course, Jay of the Dead's new horror movies. I uh, am one of the many co-hosts that uh, get to take part in that extravaganza, the the audio horror magazine. And I really wish I could attribute that to the person who said it. I really can't it was remember. me. Was, oh, that's right. Was it you? It was me. It was me. I posted it on the. Uh, on the- Oh, that's awesome. I I legitimately (laughs) felt bad because I thought that was like the most brilliant way of putting it. And I was like, who said it? And like, you know, you see all these. Like a horror magazine. Yeah. Like a horror, like an audio based horror magazine, like a Fingo or something. I was like, oh my God, like that's like the greatest uh, compliment slash, uh, honestly, I think description of what it has become. Thanks to, uh, you know, Jay and all of his insanely, um, uh, I don't know how to put it, but, but like his, his insane level of commitment to editing that much 
crazy content. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and he's good at it. He's yes. very ambitious, but it comes out and it sounds as good as you hope. Yeah, it ambitious. Would. That's the more complimentary yeah. word I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> so yeah, check all that stuff out. Uh, of course, got past episodes HMP that I was a co-host on and uh, Werewolf, the TV series, the podcast I did with my buddy Hammond. All sorts of stuff out there in the ether. That's a, so. that's a great episode, and that was a great show. Ah, um, uh, yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. Werewolf. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Love it. All right. Well, Joel, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. And we, uh, we will be seeing you again here on Phantom Galaxy. And I, I think uh, I'll be showing up over Retro Movie Key yep. soon, I think. Yes, so, very, very soon. Yeah. So, okay. That's the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Good night, everyone. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop. A lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.